0: This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly.
1: Welcome to episode 263, the annual best of episode where we compile our favorite episodes from... 2020. You know, this year was some really tough picks, uh, but we boiled it down to three episodes. It really has been a challenging year for all of us here at the Stuck Mike Avcast. And we really want to say thank you. We really appreciate you keeping the passion alive during these trying t- times. And also, we want you to know that we're going to commit to bringing you in the new year episodes from passionate aviators, those who really love to share their love and their knowledge of aviation with us and with you. Now, today's episode, we had only three picks from last year. Uh, I really highly recommend that you go out and check out some of the last episodes from last year, like past episodes from many years past. Really easy to do. Click on past episodes there on the Stuck Mike AfCast. And also, if you like some of the products that we talk about in the podcast, remember those picks of the week. We keep a track of those, and we have tons of those out there on the website. And it's easy. Click on picks of the week. And if you do appreciate the content that we're doing, uh, help us out by becoming a patron. Go to stuckmikeavcast.com slash patron. As a matter of fact, what we're going to do is every dollar we raise, we're going to put a dollar towards buying somebody a scholarship's guide so they can actually move forward in their career and in their life and also in their flying adventures. Maybe they want to get a new rating, etc. Now entering cruise flight. Well, in this episode, like I said, we're going to talk about, or we're going to have three episodes out here that were our our picks. Uh, Those are the folks here at the Stuck Mike Avcast. It was really difficult because there were so many good episodes. We put out a lot of uh, episodes this year. We're coming up on our 10-year anniversary. Really excited to be bringing this passion of aviation to you. Uh, But there was three that really stood out to us. And three of the things that we really wanted to share with you. First one that we're going to go into, and they're going to we're going to do all these three in a row. The first one is episode two thirty two, where we talked about v, VFR and IMC uh, prevention and survival. And that's one of those episodes that we're obviously all passionate about because we want to make sure we keep you safe out there as a pilot. And this is this is both from our experiences and other people's experiences as far as VFR and IMC and how you can. Make yourself safer and become a safer pilot and prevent an accident. The next one is two forty-two. Women military aviators, past and present. This was a special uh, women's takeover of the podcast by Victoria Newell, and there was a really interesting episode here because we talked with one of the people that was very much involved in helping with actually having some of the wasps recognized and buried in Arlington National Cemetery. I'm not gonna give it away too much, but our friend Aaron Miller, who's the author of Final Flight, uh, Final Fight, and it's a really interesting book. You really should read it, and we're gonna have a link to that, actually, in the show notes, too. And Nicole Malkowski, the first female Thunderbird pilot, also joined us in that episode so some really great discussions there Uh, uh, Aaron's uh, grandmother was a wasp and was very instrumental in this fight Uh, but we're not going to actually tell you too much more about that because we want you to actually check it out but there's a really really interesting story there Finally, the next one that we went over, and this is this is one of the ones that we love to bring because a lot of us are flight instructors. It's beyond the IFR check ride. I mean, truly, you know, what do you do beyond the IFR check ride? You know, we're actually getting ourselves ready for a check ride, and we think about what we need to do to pass that check ride. What we need to do is think more along the lines of what we can do to be the best pilot we can as an IFR pilot, and that's what we go into in this episode also keeping safety in mind so let's go ahead and listen to those three episodes uh from the stuck mike avcast we really enjoyed bringing this to you this year and again we're going to commit to bringing you more interesting passionate content from our listeners and also from our hosts here and we're going to be going out and doing a lot more shows uh, just like we did this year and very excited about the upcoming year and i am very hopeful especially with things and the way they're going i'm hopeful about the future of our lives and of aviation so let's go check out these three episodes a recent accident of a helicopter crash in the side of a mountain in california caused us to reflect as pilots on how we can prevent this from happening to us. Uh, today, we discuss VFR and IMC, some stis- uh, statistics, <laughs> prevention, and survival. Uh, you know, when we find ourselves flying IMC while wow, uh, VFR, what we might be able to do to get out of it. By the way, there is a disclaimer I want to put up front before we introduce our other co host. Uh, you know, due to the sense of nature of this accident, certain members of the podcast can't participate in this episode, and in no way do we represent any positions or statements made by those members. Uh, this podcast doesn't represent in any form those folks on this episode. So just want to put that forth. And also, this is a learning experience for those of us. This is a general aviation podcast, and we're trying to learn uh, from past events or current events uh, what we can do to make ourselves safer. We use those events to actually move forward with conversations, what we're not trying to do is pass judgment on current events. Nor do we <laughs> claim any knowledge of what's going on uh, during a, a current investigation. We're going to wait till the, you know, all the experts get done with all their investigations of whatever crash it may be that's recent, uh, just so that we can learn from all those things. It's a listener mail from Victoria. Victoria sent this over to us. She couldn't make it on the show tonight, but. Um, This comes in, and and I'm going to make a caveat after I actually read the email, because it is is a good way to start the discussion. There's a couple things that we're going to talk about within this email. Anyway, the listener mail says, uh, With the unfortunate accident uh, with Kobe Bryant, there's a discussion on uh, Pilots of America about whether synthetic vision would have helped. I think this might make for an interesting topic on uh, on our podcast. I do wonder if synthetic vision would be any help in those situations and would make it the 178-second-to-live scenario a thing of the past or if activating an autopilot with auto level or even a 180-degree heading feature would have helped in that situation. Uh, he continues on that on his Sport Cruiser, I changed the Garmin 496 to Garmin Aero 660, and my AHAR source is from a GDL39 3D unit. I also upgraded my autopilot with True Track Vision with auto level feature. Uh, before the Bendix King acquisition, I don't ever plan to fly into the clouds or beyond twilight conditions. But I know things happen, so having the Era 660 with the synthetic vision provides some relief. Though I hope never. To have to use it in those conditions. Thanks again. Well, first of all, um, going into this this whole scenario, I'm glad we brought this up. What this has done is brought to the fore a couple things like special VFR and, the, and discussions there. As far as you know, conjecture. As far as what this has helped in that situation, we're not going to really go into that. That's kind of one of those discussions you see on the on the forums, and everybody kind of has their opinions on things. And we, we try not to get into that. You know, we don't try to speculate as to what happened. Again, we let the experts uh, figure out what. happened in this situation and then we're going to talk a little bit about that in the future and i think that's really important to make that that point there so uh could it would it should it you know we're not going to go into those things but one thing that i love about this email is it brought to the fore the different things that we could do uh in both of our our ifr flying uh, different things that we can put in our airplane, equipment, etc., training, that'll help us fly IFR and be more proficient and tools that we can use. But also we want to help prevent uh, people flying uh, VFR into IMC. You know, a, qu- a quick statistic, just to let you know, some of these accidents that have happened, this is, by the way, from the NAL report, Is really cool. It's put together by uh, AOPA every year, it talks about uh, accidents and general aviation. And, and again, the other point we need to make is that we're talking only about general aviation, non-commercial type of flying. Uh, and this is, you know, to bring this discussion into our realm, which is general aviation. And yeah, you know, we see the statistics, and they're really um, not so great. Uh, flying IMC, uh, VFR, and IMC, it's this actual accidents are high, and also the fatality rate is really high. You know that video that we talk about, AOPA, it was 178 seconds to live. It really is true, and it's um, just to add to that, just you know, from empirical data, just go out there with your students, your very flight instructor listening and, and get them into an IFR situation and, uh, you know, put the foggles on, take them out over the coast and, and see how long they last as far as controlling the airplane. Uh, Sometimes it works out fairly well. Sometimes it doesn't. If they have some instrument training in the past, it's a little bit better, but normally I find just uh, within a couple minutes, the person is unable to actually control that, uh, that aircraft. And, and that's from a statistical standpoint. It's also important to know that uh, we see this happen often where people get themselves into situations that they shouldn't. But one of the things I want to do, and I think Tom was willing to to step up to this as far as flying. And this, again, is going back to us and general aviation. And remember, the rules are different for helicopters and general aviation and also uh, fixed wing is, you know, this whole thing about special vfr and using special vfr and then and, and i'd like after tom defines what that special vfr is kind of discuss uh our usage of it and then talk a little bit about how to prevent vfr and imc so tom um maybe you could give us a you know a quick definition as to uh, what special vfr is
2: yeah so um you know, the far aims, uh, in the far, you have 91, one fifty-seven, which tells you what the special VFR minimums are. And basically comes down to that. You need, um, to be, uh, you need to be on an ATC clearance. Um, you need to be clear of the clouds and you, you have one mile, of, uh, one statute mile of visibility. And that's basically it, you know, I mean, um, the, um, you know, if you're going to fly from um, sunset to sunrise, you gotta be on an, uh, uh, you gotta be IFR rated and be in an IFR, um, certified aircraft, you know, but, um, and, and as you said, the rules are a little different for a helicopter. And then, um, you have, uh, the aim, which, uh, it's a uh, section four dash four dash six, which tells you how to get your clearances for it and, and basically re-describes those rules that are, that are set forth in, um. Uh, 9157. Um there's also an appendix that talks about um, airports. There are certain airports around the country that don't even uh, permit special VFR, and the list is uh, found in in the FARs as well.
1: Well, thanks for that quick definition, and and now let's put it into use. Um, as far as using special VFR, we actually had that discussion today. We could have departed where we are, special VFR, to go to where we wanted to go. And realized that in route, we, uh, once we left any controlled airspace, you know, we left tower and uh, we would have been outside of uh, that special VFR. (laughs) And you know clearance, and we would have been actually illegal at that point. Uh, maybe, maybe not, depending on the different. We were looking at some of the reports from the airports, and it was just so close. So in our case today, we decided to make that that very conservative decision, saying, you know what, let's let's just wait till it gets VFR. You know, our, our plane was equipped. You know, it was getting to the point where we're close to sunset. We're VFR. You know, rated that type of thing, but it was better to err on the side of safety. Especially, a lot of people don't realize that. Florida's pretty flat, but we do have some things out there called towers and TV towers, and you, you have to fly around some of those, and it was a good day when later on to kind of look at those things and realize that those are out there. Really neat that some of our equipment uh, has that ability to to pop up and say, hey, yeah, there's a, a, a object ahead, there's terrain ahead, et cetera. We we'll talk a little bit about that, but um, Tom, uh, I want to ask you first, and then Russ, as far as special VFR. <laughs> I'm curious. Have how much have you actually actually used special VFR
2: and special VFR clearances? So for me, it was um, I've only really actually used it once, and I used it as going back to an airport. So we had de- I departed with a student. We were flying out over the beach, and um, the the weather. Um, it started closing in on us and it got to the point where it was vfr and we could have we could have filed a pop-up vfr to get back in or a pop-up ifr um but we called the tower and said hey i'd like to get special vfr to get back in and it was pretty straightforward they they granted our request and we were able to stay clear of the clouds um we still had plenty of visibility it was just the the deck was starting to close in a little bit and I, I may not have even needed. I think I still could have maintained the two thousand foot and and got in, but um you know it was it was pretty easy. They didn't ask me a bunch of questions. They didn't do anything. I requested a special BFR. they granted it, and I was able to land.
1: Well, That's interesting. And you've been flying for a while. How many years you've been flying? This is like only one time you've used it? Yeah, I, well, what am I having? so somewhere about eleven years now? Right, so that it's not often that we use, in it. it's uh, something we we don't use very often. That's one of the things, like I said in the, the FA safety seminars that we do. It's we try to tell people it's it's not something you can use very, very often. It's uh, really something you should rarely use, also. Uh, but uh, but anyway, Russ, how about you? Have you uh, had any experience using a special VFR clearance?
3: One time that I can remember, uh, and that's probably it. And I, I want to say it was just moving an airplane between a. A towered field and a untowered field that was you know just right outside the delta i i think um but i, I the one thing i do remember about it was was that i requested a special vfr and i don't think the controller got that request very much because uh it was there was a very obvious pause you know while you know a, Hey, what do we do for this? Hey, <laughs> right. you, you got to tell them this thing, you know. Whatever, yeah. I, I don't know what was going on in the tower, but but it sure seemed like you know. I mean, I you know, like it's One time I've ever used it, and it sure seemed like they didn't do it very often either. So they gave me all the normal phraseology, whatever it was, and you know, I went on my way, and it worked. I mean, it was I was moving the airplane about five miles away, so um, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't too big of a deal, uh, but it, it certainly helped out in that situation. But I mean all the all the flying I do if it's that bad of weather I'm just going to be IFR anyway so yeah I I don't see a real big a real big call for it in my flying
1: yeah and I like that you said that and that's where I wanted to ask you since you flight instruct what advice do you give to your students concerning special VFR
3: well we talk about it I mean you know about it being an, an option but but man you know <sighs> Usually when you go up with a student, you know, now student here we're I'm literally talking about a student pilot, you know, not not rated at all. Uh you're going up and you're flying and the weather's generally good. I mean, some places I've lived, you know, might be, you know, five miles of visibility or something and, and you, you still go up, but uh but generally, I mean, there's ten miles of visibility or more when you're up there flying. So if you do get a chance, and I try to do this. Um, go up on a day when it's, you know, three miles of visibility or, you know, right on the edge there of marginal VFR or, or even lower and, and let the students see what it looks like. And a couple of times I've been able to do that to real good success. They've Oh man, I don't want to fly in this at all. <laughs> you, know, you can't see anything because you know, when you're used to seeing, you know, 20 or 30 miles away and it goes down to three or something, it's a very dramatic change. Uh, you know, out here in Oklahoma, when it's three miles of visibility is usually because there's you know, other significant weather. I've also lived some other places like around the Chesapeake Bay area where you know, three miles of visibility might be a good normal sunny day, <laughs> you know? So, uh, but, but it is very, very eye-opening, just that reduction of visibility. Then you talk about, well, you know, special VFR, you know, one mile, all this kind of thing, man, that's, that's, that's pretty tight. So you know, like, like I said, just a minute ago, you know, that that's weather that, you know, I'm not going to go up and do training and I'm not going to be doing, you know, pattern work or something so you know i'm going to be flying ifr and if i've got that kind of weather and yeah and if it's appropriate in the syllabus i might fly you know file ifr with that student and let them get a taste of what it really looks like so they can maybe scare themselves and and into getting their instrument rating or something
1: and that's a good point, you know, is is one of the things that we talk about is uh, it, we're going to go into this and, and get past the special VFR clearances is uh, avoiding VFR and IMC, number one, um, and trying to survive an accidental, uh, you know, flight into IMC. And I personally, people ask me how you know, how do I survive that? We do that training, you know, during the private pilot certificate. You know, we do a little bit of IFR training to try to get you out of IMC. Um, my my thing when I, I tell students the best way to survive it is get your instrument rating and file. Um, and I think that's, I think the advice that many instructors give. So, um, and I think, Russ, I'd, I'd like to get your opinion on this as far as, you know, I'm sure you've gotten these questions before. You know, how do I survive that accident accidental flight into IMC?
3: <laughs> well... Uh, how do you survive the accidental flight into imc well i think a lot of it comes with you know in order to survive that encounter you have to be trained you know this you know if you're the 178 seconds to live thing is you know a, a handy number to throw around but if i remember right that study was done with pilots who had zero training in ifR and very basic equipped airplanes and that was something like the average time it took to Go out of control or, or something. I don't remember that, but but the key was it was with untrained, um, you know, not instrument trained pilots, pilots who hadn't had any real exposure to it, and that's a real old study if I remember right from the, yes. you know, the '60s or maybe '70s or something. And and of course, you know, now we require some uh, instrument training even for private pilots. So that's that's the best way to to you know. In any case, I mean, whether we're talking about VFR and IMC or you know. Engine failures or any kind of other emergency, the best way to survive is to have the training before you even get there. Of course, um, but and another thing yeah, in the uh, in the listener mail, you know, talk about this equipment, synthetic vision, all that kind of stuff. And you had made the comment about you know what kind of equipment help. Well, really, training is the best equipment you can have. Definitely, the other stuff is a great aid. But and we'll talk a little bit more about this later, I'm sure. But I mean, even the best equipment can, you, you, if you're not trained and able to ignore uh, what your uh, vestibular system is telling you in your inner ear, it doesn't matter how much good equipment you have on board, you're going you're gonna to ignore it anyway and do what you think is right, which usually will be wrong.
1: I love that you made that point. As far as the equipment is a great aid, but without the training, it it doesn't. It's not going to help you at all, really. I mean, right, and right. and that's that. And I have a really good um, uh, incident, uh, almost accident example of a couple of airline pilots flying down into the hills of Mexico, and there's that one of the airlines I used to work for, and they decided to just disregard the terrain warning that they had from the system. They said, "Oh, it must not be working." And, uh, when they went back and for some reason they got a, a radar altimeter that went off, it was showed like two, 300 feet. Well, the reason it went off is because they missed the top of the mountain by 200 to 300 feet. If they just listened to that, wow. that terrain warning and took action as appropriate from their training, then they would have missed it by a lot more than that. But they decided that, oh no, that must be wrong. And, and we do find that every so often in, in certain scenarios, especially when we go over uh, post-incident reports and obviously post-accident reports, that people sometimes do that. They take that wonderful system that we have in the aircraft and, and they disregard it, uh, similar to other systems that tell us, you know, hey, pull up and you don't pull up, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. It's It's it has to go with, and I love the point you made there. There's, there's equipment, equipment's great, but you have to use that equipment, get trained in how to use it. And, and it has to be consistent, you know, that's for sure. But, uh, anyway, so right, re- I mean, what, what's your opinion on that?
3: Well, well, you know, I, I wanted to bring up a, an interesting thing I did. This is, uh, several years ago, it might've been five or six years ago. Um, I had a I had a student pilot. He was actually working on his, um, sport pilot, uh, but we were real early in it and we had access to one of the Redbird simulators. And you know, I, I wanted to you know get this whole point across about training and such because he was going for a sport pilot. And, you know, they they don't receive as you know as much instrument training, of course. And so in the Redbird simulator, it was simulating a Cessna one seventy two, but I gave him basic, you know, like you know, Cub style instruments, <laughs> you know, just the very basic instruments you would have in, in possibly a light sport aircraft. Uh, if you were looking, you know, for the more, uh, you know, vintage type aircraft and you know, I, I basically had everything else failed other than, you know, airspeed and whatever. So very limited instrumentation. And then I had them fly inadvertently into IMC and, you know, <laughs> If it wasn't one hundred and seventy eight seconds exactly, it was really close. I mean, it was a matter of just a couple minutes and and he was in in a spiral towards the ground. Now, you know the the Redbird simulators, you know they're they're good, you know, but they don't trick your ear in quite the same way, but it was it was realistic enough, and he was he was definitely uh, uh, I guess you'd say scared away from from pressing his luck into into bad weather, certainly.
1: So how about let's kind of shift gears there as far as the the VFR and IMC we've been talking about the best prevention is to get training et cetera but I, I think we'd be remiss to not discuss okay now what I, I messed up I'm here I'm I'm IMC um, and we do this training in your private pilot uh, during your private pilot certificate et cetera and I always tell people you know just concentrate on flying the airplane and I know it's hard to say this but don't panic. Go back to your training and just concentrate and get help. Uh, Call somebody, get some help. You know, I've had an issue when I just had my private. I called the controller and said, hey, listen, you know, the cloud deck's getting lower and, you know, I need need a little help here. And once you say I need help, uh, bells and whistles go off and they're going to try as hard as they can uh, to help you out. And uh, the most important thing is try as hard as you can to stay VFR, but... If you do get caught in that situation, remember what your instructor told you to do. Uh, go through all those scenarios. And if you're not comfortable or you remember those things, uh, go out and get your instrument rating, obviously, but also go with an instructor and, and go over those things. Because what will happen is you know getting stuck in IFR, just like Russ did with a student, what it might do is it might actually spur you to do some more training. And, uh, you know, just remember that a lot of – like, for instance, special VFR, et cetera, that's not even legal uh, for people that fly commercially for uh, airlines, et cetera. And there's a reason for that. And so we look back at that, and, and some people will say, you know, well, maybe we should change the rules, et cetera. Well – yeah, maybe, but maybe not. We have to have that discussion somewhere else. Um, but I think it's out there. Uh, special VFR is out there for for a reason. But also the reason we do the training uh, during their private pilot certificate is to help Uh, people to get out of the situation but we need to stress don't get into the situation that's for sure Uh, so tom i was curious uh, what do you do with your students primary students not not so much the instrument students as far as uh vfr and imc how do you help them out uh and and kind of talk about what you do discuss with them when you're training them to uh, try to prevent this and also during their training uh ifr training while they're in their private
2: yeah um I, I think Russ described it pretty adequately and I'm, I'm not much different. You know, I like to, I like to get my students up in there that we have to have three hours of training for, uh, for a private pilot certificate. So, um, three hours under the foggles gives you an opportunity to, um, you know, really drive home what it's going to be like trying to operate that aircraft, you know, without being able to see anything outside of it. And, um, You know, the biggest thing with the private in in three hours worth of training, um, basically training them how to get themselves back out of trouble again, you know? And I mean, even an, even an IFR reading when, when I got my instrument, that was what my instructor told me. He says, remember, this is not a, a rating to get yourself into trouble. It's a rating to get yourself out. He says, the idea is not to get yourself in trouble in the first place. So that said, it's the same thing when teaching a private pilot. And, you know, a lot of that training is just, you know, doing a nice straight and level um, 180 degree turn to go back to where you knew it was clear before. You know, um, as soon as they saw weather deteriorating, the bells and whistles should already be going off in your head like, okay, I don't belong here. I need to go back where it was clear and figure out what I'm going to do. You know, so a lot of that training is just that a nice straight and level 180 degree turn and being able to um, start a scan so that they can keep control of that aircraft.
1: I think that's a great idea One and something to add to that. Um, th- think outside the box. Uh, you may wind up getting yourself caught in a situation where you have a thousand places to land below you. Uh, there could be a nice straight road, etc. you're in the country. That may be your out. So don't disregard any outs. Everything is an option uh, while you're flying and you get yourself stuck in the IMC or in a really low uh, visibility uh, situation. The other interesting thing, too, I feel. Go ahead, Tom.
2: Oh, I was going to say absolutely, and it 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 goes along. Um, what what popped into my mind as you were saying that about uh, you know using an out, even if it comes to landing on a country road. Um, it reminded. I was thinking of the the far aim and that piece that I was reading there. There's a a special note in there that says specifically that the pilot is responsible for terrain and obstacle clearance avoidance. Right.
1: And those obstacles can seem obvious, and uh, but they aren't, and can wind up getting us, uh, bite us. And one of those obstacles I want to talk a little bit about is that we have this, this rating where we can fly VFR at night. And in the U.S., a lot of other countries don't have that. You have to have your instrument rating, et cetera. But w- there are certain scenarios that you really should think twice about flying VFR, and one of them is flying over water at night. I really hammer that into my students' heads. That Gosh, you know, we really should should not think twice about ever going VFR over the water at night. And I'm not so much talking about like those city areas where there's lots of lights lighting up the water and that type of thing. But I mean, we're truly out over the coast. And, you know, Tom and I, we both get that opportunity. I'm sure some people out in the country, they get those opportunities to fly over very dark, featureless terrain just like water is. And boy, you don't know which way is up. And you have to really rely on your your instruments. And I was actually reminded of this today because Peter O'Knight Airport, uh, we were using, uh, was it 2-2? And we took off. And as we took off, I know I was flying with my nephew. He says to me, he says, "Uh, you know, there's a lot of water around us right now. And, I mean, you rotate. You're at 700 feet. And you're over the water. And I said, yeah, there is. He says, you know, I'm not sure. This is a very comfortable situation here. He's like, yeah, it makes you think, doesn't it? Uh, I said, we really should maybe have that discussion. And not only that, have that discussion of taking off out of this airport at night. And I'm going to go back in there with him at night and say, hey, listen, we take off to the south at night. There is nothing. There's It's It's dark. Uh, And it could uh, really get you disoriented. You may have to go to using your instruments as you take off at night. In general, that can happen also in the country. Uh, So Tom, I know you're one of those people that's been doing a heck of a lot of flying on the coast and and with students, and I was kind of curious, you know, have you done those demonstrations over the bay and and what have the results been?
2: Um, yeah, the demonstrations over the Bay and over the Gulf. I mean, it's, it is a black void of nothing at night. Um, you get one of those nice moonless nights and it, it is, um, you know, it's like the coast end and it's like the world ends out in the Gulf of Mexico. So flying up and down there in the middle of the night is, is definitely daunting and I know when. Let's see, I had just gotten my private, I was working on my instrument and um happened to do a nighttime flight. Um was keeping some night currency and flew up the coast. And I was talking to a controller. I was out of his airspace, but he called me. He said he asked if I was still still on frequency. And I said yes. He says, Hey, I've got a C-130, which there's a Coast Guard base on the field that I took off from, and he said he's coming down the coast opposite direction, same altitude. And it made me look to the left to go out and go, and I go, okay, I got him in sight. And when I turned my head back to look at Pinellas County, which was all dark, it rolled off to the right. I mean, it literally just rolled off. And I'm sitting there looking at my instruments, and I literally had to say out loud, trust your instruments, trust your instruments, trust your instruments, because it it did. It felt like I was turning, but I wasn't. I was straight and level. My brain was telling me I was turning, and it was the weirdest feeling in the world. But that's when I, I discovered that, okay, it's just that easy. I snapped my head left to right, and I got me a good case of spatial disorientation, and the idea that my instruments were correct was true.
1: And that's also important, uh, surviving an accident flight in IMC, especially if you're IFR certified and uh, current. Uh, You you know you trust your instruments and sometimes uh, that's tough to do and we've we've all gotten disoriented in some way or another and it's great that you did that because um, you know it's something we teach our students and sometimes you hear your instructor saying that to you it's like wait a minute trust my instruments even though I know I'm I'm my body says I'm in a turn it tells me I'm straight and level and I'm gonna have to trust what the instruments are saying that's that's some really good advice. But interestingly, also is the fact that not everybody flies anywhere near the water, but they sometimes fly out in the middle of the country, over featureless terrain. And you know, I've done that in Texas, and I know uh, Russ. I think you know, I know you fly out of a city, but when you get away from the city where you are, it it gets pretty dark, doesn't it?
3: It is really dark sometimes, and you get that you know, moonless night or the high you know cloud layer you know, obscuring the moon and you get away from the city lights and it's, it's dark. I mean, you know, when I take students out for, you know, the night cross country flights, you know, I, I intentionally take it to some places that I know where there's not much around. There's, there's quite a bit of not much around uh, in some parts of Oklahoma, just like you mentioned over <laughs> Texas. So uh, it's not hard to find, um, but it, you know, I, we obviously don't, you know, have uh, oceans to fly over anywhere near here, but, uh, but it really is a lot of times there can be the same effect. Uh, you just lose all, all, uh, perspective on, on the ground and such. And, and then you know, maybe you turn around to come back and you got the lights of the city off in the distance. Well, sometimes that, you know, kind of just like Tom was talking about, you know, the, yeah, I, you know, the, the way the lights are, are oriented and, uh, you know, it makes you think maybe that you're turning and you're not, uh, yeah, even that can be a mess. So yeah, at night, just like you're talking about, I mean, this, this is why some countries have that, you know, night VFR rating, you know, it's a special thing. I think that's like true in Canada maybe. And, uh, and in other countries where it's just, you gotta be IFR at night. And, and it's, yeah, it's funny cause I've taken, you know, some questions from, you know, From non-pilots or people that want to be pilots or just starting a training. So, you know, when I'm a private pilot, can I fly at night? And they're really surprised that they can because they would have thought you can't see anything. And, well, in some ways that can be true.
1: Yes. Yeah. And th- and that's a great point. And one of the things that is really interesting, what you said there is, um, you know, a moonless night, et cetera. Boy, it really becomes a, a black hole. And I, I remember taking off not long ago, and I, I looked at the captain. And I said, boy, I'm sure glad I got my instrument ready. <laughs> he chuckled. He He's like, really? I said, no, nah. I, I fly small airplanes. And I sometimes think to myself, gosh, you know, if I just took off, and, and this is actually a VFR takeoff, I'd probably be really disoriented because I can't see a darn thing. You know, I'm flying out of some you know small airport in Iowa, and I'm over a field, and it all disappears. That's for sure. That's where all that nice equipment that's in front of you helps you in knowing where you are. You know, it's uh, the the GPSs, et cetera. As a matter of fact, that's a good segue for our discussion on equipment and you know helping us survive uh, in IFR and i hate to say that word survive making it safer in ifr making our situational awareness higher and there are so many different pieces of equipment that are out there but we have to use those one of those is you know flying a great example and i've had this happen where had a TCAS system that's a system where uh it's a an avoidance uh it's a collision avoidance software uh, that talks to the other airplane through your transponder and it tells the other airplane to descend, you to climb, trying to avoid a collision. Well, if you don't understand how to use that software, it sounds really simple, but it's not. Um, some they all they're all different. I've used you know a resolu- it's called a resolution advisory. If you it you have this advisory and it tells you, listen, you need to descend and you need to descend at a certain rate to avoid a collision with that other aircraft. But if you don't know how to actually perform that, a maneuver, it's useless having that inf- that instrument in your airplane, just like a lot of this other instrument we talk about, you know, the true track vision, you know, this, and the auto leveling feature and all those kind of things, you know, those are all very good tools. Uh, but again, the most important thing is that training. And, and we're we're kind of going beyond just, you know, hey, what should we have in the aircraft? I know uh, the discussion maybe should go in that direction too. A lot of people talk about the parachute. I know that was brought up quite a bit in certain aircraft that have a, a ballistic recovery type of system. Yeah, that's another, la- you know, a, a, a last resort system. It's good to have everything in your aircraft. But again, you need to be trained to to use those things. And and one thing that I'm actually in the discussion with in the aircraft that I fly, because I have nothing as far as uh, collision avoidance, I would love to actually get something where I can actually have that ADSB in, because I was flying with Tom, and when I saw that and I was able to see the other traffic before, you know, on the screen, before I actually saw it out the window, that that was like one of the most... You know, eye opening events in a small airplane because I'm so used to having that, uh, even in, in the airliner. Interestingly enough, though, in the airliner, we don't have ADSB in on all the airliners, so that actually is not always a I don't have that ability, but I do have TCAS and they, they're required to have it there. But it's really, uh, those are really great tools. But anyway, uh, Rush, you had a point you want to make.
3: Yeah, just about the training. I mean, we cannot stress enough that any equipment you have in that airplane, you need to you need to be capable of using it. You need to be you know trained on how to use it. And that's not just a plug for you know Tom and I as flight instructors, although it's a good one. Um, but no, I mean it. You know, I've seen this you know repeatedly, and it, it's is a little bit humorous sometimes. You know, I'll be with a client, and and they'll say. Yeah, you know, we'll be maybe doing some instrument proficiency check type stuff, or you know that kind of work. And they'll say, hey, they'll say, "Hey, I got you know synthetic vision on my iPad. You know, you know, can I use it?" I'm like, "Absolutely, I And mean, That's a, That's a great you know backup. You know, whatever. So let's do this. We'll you know we'll I'll cover everything up like there was a problem. Just use your synthetic vision. And if they haven't done it before. Their scan is, is, I mean, it's totally different. They're looking, you know, maybe their iPad is down in their lap or something. They're looking down there. The, the presentation is different. Uh, they're not used to flying it. Just, you know, things are in a different location. They, they haven't tried it out before. Well, it's a great backup, but only if you, you know, have used it before. You know, we don't, you, you don't want to make the first time you, you do something to be in the emergency situation, right? You know, we we don't want the first time you you lose an engine and a twin to be the actual time you lose the engine and a twin. Right. So, uh, so we train on stuff and training is is very, very important. Even when it's, it seems so obvious. I mean, you know, you're sitting there at home and you got your iPad and you bring up the synthetic vision and it looks great. You know, it's got the artificial horizon and all that, the AHRs and stuff. But if you haven't actually flown with it in the airplane, it takes a little bit to get used to. And I'm not saying it's impossible, but you don't want, to be trying to figure it out when you're task saturated with some other kind of emergency or VFR in the IMC in today's example.
1: I like the what you talked about there as far as training and having those uh, backup instruments are great, but again, going back to using them, very important. I, I think that's terrific uh, and, and great point. I I know that I like to do that when I'm flying around. I like to go look at the standby attitude indicator and try to fly that a little bit. Obviously, VFR and, and good conditions, but it really is a challenge. I mean, trying to fly using that standby. Uh, but but I think the other thing, too, like this individual was talking about, is having another AHAR source, et cetera. Uh, that goes towards, I think, speaks more towards IFR safety. I mean, here's another piece of backup equipment that you can use. Uh, and the, it is is great, just like you said, if you have the training on first of all how to use it, and second of all, do you know how to turn it on? you know how do you know how to switch over to that i mean that's a great example too is that we have screens nowadays in our our cockpits. Do you know how to switch that screen? does it do it automatically if it doesn't switch automatically, then how do I do that? Uh, those are the kind of things that we have to get training on it's great to do it with an instructor in the airplane. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, a good example is I'm going up with a student, uh, a very experienced instrument rated, been flying for years, and we're going to go over some of the systems in his aircraft uh, for his new the new Avidine that he put in. But he wants to make sure he's doing it. First of all, me looking out the window and doing a VFR before we actually do it, IFR. We're doing it in the airplane because he owns the airplane. But you could do the same thing in a simulator. As a matter of fact, Uh, A lot of these different pieces of software have simulators on the iPad online, uh, even on your phone that you could actually work with and go through the procedures. So you actually have the procedures down and then now you can actually fly that thing. But again, get out there with a flight instructor and, and go out and practice. And I think that's the point that Russ was trying to make. And it's a good point to be made, that's for sure. Um, but going towards, uh, you know, the other discussion as far as, and I don't ever, I don't want the person that wrote in to feel that we're not answering his question, but there's the the certain things, like I said, we're not going to, we're going to avoid talking about could it have, or should it have, or would it have. Uh, we want to actually promote safety in general aviation. And one of the things we want to promote is how to avoid getting into IMC conditions and also try to promote and maybe help people move towards the possibility of an injury Rating And uh, and if you do have an instrument rating, another thing that happens, and I'd love to hear, you know, Tom, your thoughts on this and Russ, sometimes we don't want to file IFR. I know, gosh me, I don't want to talk to anybody when I'm flying my little airplane. It's so wonderful to not have to talk on the radio because I'm talking on the radio all the time at work. But but there are times you just got to file IFR. And even people with instrument ratings, you see them sometimes reticent to file and uh, and there you know why is that i mean tom do you, do you have any feelings as to you know why even your instrument students might be reticent to file maybe it's you know the hassle of doing it i don't know
2: I don't know. might be, I mean, my personal experience is that, you know, I'm, I'm of the mind of why wouldn't you want to talk to somebody? You know, I mean, it's, if I'm going someplace and I want to get safely from point A to point B, it's the safest way to get there. Now that said, I have the days where I want to just go out and fly and I don't want to talk to anybody. Like you were saying, I want to get in the plane. I want to go enjoy myself. Um, you know, um, me and Carl, when you and I flew the last time, you know, I mean, we got to fly like a couple little kids. Oh, look at that over there. And we turn the airplane and we go fly over there and look at it and go fly around and go, you know, I think I remember you commenting that you looked at flight awares or, 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 or breadcrumbs or something <laughs> to track afterwards. And like, it definitely wasn't a straight line between point A and point B. I mean, we were like two little kids just checking everything out. So, and, and that's the beauty of having a VFR aircraft and being able to find, it's being able to make that determination that it is safe to do that. And if it's not, that's what the rating is for is so that I can get out of an airport safely and that I can get back into an airport safely and, and do it within the rules. And, and sometimes talking to somebody is the best way to do that. So I don't think I've ever personally been, you know, reticent to, to, um, not file, you know, I mean, I, I use the system because that's what it's there for and that's what's going to keep me the safest and it, it's part of making that, that decision when I'm going to go get into an airplane for the day.
1: And that's good advice. Now, Russ, have you run into folks that are like that that say, yeah, I know I'm instrument rating but I really don't want to have to file?
2: Yeah,
3: when, when after, after I, you know, sign someone off for a check ride and for their instrument rating and they pass it, I mean, you know, and I'm talking about how ride went and whatever, it, I will always say the, the best way to maintain, competence in ifr and the system is to file it and use it every time you go fly even if the weather is beautiful and clear but so many of the the people you know then i talked to a year later and like oh yeah i just I, I just never you know i just never file ifr it's you know it's always clear weather when i go so i just go vfr i'm like yeah <laughs> What did I tell you? Yeah, you know, you, you got to, you get the best way to maintain, you know, your head in the game is to file that IFR all the time. And if you file it, IFR all the time, you're not going to be concerned about it when you need to file it. If you haven't flown in a system for a year and now it's bad weather and you need to, well, you're going to be a little concerned about it. But if you've been doing it every flight, then it just becomes a matter of routine. Kind of like, you know, like Tom and I both do on most of our flights. It was, it's IFR. Um and we're in the system and it's it's just it's it's routine. So that's what you want. You want the difficult things to seem routine so that the truly tough stuff uh you can handle uh easier.
1: That's a great point. And one of the things that I know I, I don't file as much as I could, but I will do one thing, I will uh put up approach control and I even talk to them like I did today, even though I didn't have to, but it was a short fifteen minute flight. But I think just being in the system also helps you with lots of different things, not just uh, you know and being safe, but also for survival. Say you lost an engine, at least you know someone's coming to get you pretty quickly because you're you're on your way down. You're talking to somebody, um, and that's those are you know that's kind of not the discussion here. But in general, it is better uh, as far as filing and being in the system because if you do find yourself in an IFR conditions when you were flying VFR, now you've got to get the clearance, now you gotta admit you just broke a rule. Now you've got to, you know, get this pop-up IFR and you know it's like it's a it's a real hassle. Now you gotta get out there, copy down the clearance. It's a lot easier to do that beforehand. Uh, so and what's interesting in this discussion that we're having we talk about equipment equipment's awesome I mean it's absolutely terrific synthetic vision uh, doing landings at airports and having you know a head up display of course it's going to make it safer your instrument uh, flight safer but what we're talking about is flying VFR and IMC and I think the biggest point here is is just don't do it unless you're actually flying IFR your current your aircraft is equipped and you know how to use that equipment on your aircraft and you've gotten the training and that's the biggest point that all of the instructors here have made and it's something that we want you to do because we want you to continue flying we want you to be safe and we we'd love to hear you know your opinions obviously on this and we want to you know keep keep moving in that direction and that's really something that i think we we need to think about and that's really really important is is what am i doing and is it is it increasing my safety or decreasing it and we do that just about every day you know we're we're looking at that but uh, anyway, Rush, you had a, a, a answer to a question on this
3: Well yeah I just wanted to yeah, before we get you know much further along I wanted to say uh, you know what you said about you know following your instruments and that kind of thing I, I want to go back to the the listener mail that Victoria got and he's wondering if synthetic vision would have been a help in VFR and IMC situations and I mean there's no there's no doubt of course it would be a help I, I don't I don't see that anybody could really argue that it would be detrimental having synthetic vision um but the the problem and if you if you've never been disoriented in imc whether it was a vfr and imc or just you know you were intentionally in imc you know on ifr flight plan you know if you've never been really disoriented truly disoriented it's hard to understand how much you can doubt your instruments i mean Every instrument could say you are turning and you don't think you are or vice versa. It doesn't matter if you've got a G1000 and the horizon is sideways on that thing. If your ear says you're turning a different way or you're not turning, or you're a straight level, whatever, it is so hard without proper training and experience to ignore your inner ear. It, yeah. It, and I'm sure, Tom, I'm sure, Carl, you've seen the same thing that people will, will ignore everything in front of them and, and believe their ear when they've got all this amazing instrumentation and it doesn't matter what level of instrumentation you have. So, um, yes, synthetic vision would be great help in these situations, but it's never going to make the 178 second to live scenario thing of the past. Like the, like the listener I I don't think because just because of that, the, the illusion is so strong. If you don't have the, the training to, uh, notice it and realize it and then compensate for it. Uh, uh, he or she, I, I guess we don't know, also asks um, if activating an autopilot with an auto level or, you know, like a heading bug, you know, to turn around, it would have helped uh, in, if you're in VFR and IMC. Uh, yeah, certainly. I went on a, a flight with a client of mine. He had just put in an autopilot in his bonanza that has one of those level buttons. Oh, we had a great time trying this thing out. <laughs> you know, you know, oh, let's see. Let's you know, climb and dive and, you know, you know, weird turns and stuff and reach over there and tap the button. It did great. Um, wonderful technology. I'm very interested to see how that capability plays out and, you know, it re- it returned the plane to straight and level every time. I have no idea what would happen if we were upside down. You know, we didn't try that. We weren't an aerobatic airplane, but uh, that would be interesting to see. Uh, but of course, just like anything else, I mean, you gotta realize you need help to press to just do something as simple as press that button. Uh, but that would I don't see any way that that couldn't help. Uh, any autopilot, of course, is is going to be able to help to some degree, or you know, even turn you around and get you out of the IMC, of course. So. I just wanted to kind of wrap up a couple of the, the quick remaining questions there that the listener had. Well,
1: I'm, I'm glad you caught that. right? And that's uh, and it's true. All those pieces of equipment can help, uh, again, if you use it. And, you know, the first time I used that all-level feature, oh, my God, that was so cool. Um, and yeah, it's it, fun. It, it is. You try to get it out of the bounds of being able to level itself, and it worked, man. I tell you, I was like – I, you know, other than going upside down, like you said, we couldn't do that in the serious but, um, you know, it's, I guess we could have, but we shouldn't. Uh, it really does work. It's pretty, pretty cool stuff. Maybe we could try it in the simulator, see what happens there. Um, but it's really, you know, all these different tools are just wonderful tools, and it is going to make it a safer scenario. Um, but, you know, if you look at just people that look at the airline flying, all these these different systems they have in the aircraft. It's helped. It helps if you use it and you're trained and you're constantly getting retrained. And I think that's what we have to do. And I think that was a great point. Uh that was one of the best points that I think Russ made is is training, training, training is so important. Uh so I'm glad you brought that up, Russ. But uh, but as far as flying VFR and IMC, the prevention is uh, don't do it. You know if you're if you're there's any question, stop, think about it. Uh, if the go no go decision, uh, also get yourself an instrument rating that can help also because uh, if you do find yourself in IMC, the other thing too is that a lot of scenarios where you see people flying VFR and IMC, they're actually at a very low altitude and either around structures or terrain. And they wind up uh, getting themselves into trouble there uh, because they don't want to file IFR. If you have the rating in that you're equipped, uh, the, the sooner you get under an IFR clearance and you're being controlled by a controller uh, and in radar contact, boy, it, it makes the situation that much uh, much better for you. That's for sure. Uh, so if you do you know, think, uh, gosh, in any way uh, you should be flying IFR, yeah. Go ahead and and file. And I just talked to somebody the other day, did a VFR cross-country, and it's like, you know, it was just right there at minimums. And I was like, you know, maybe you should have filed instead of actually flying that that flight. You know, of course, it did it safely, but uh, just wasn't the most comfortable thing in the world. Got the instrument rating. You got the aircraft. It's equipped. Go ahead and file. Um, but uh, anyway, hopefully we've answered some of those questions. Obviously, um, like I said, this is a there's a tragic event. There's, there's many of these It happens uh, too often. Actually, uh, people get themselves in trouble either legally or they cause an accident just because they they actually fly. Uh, they're flying VFR and they wind up in IMC, and it, whether they're rated or not. Uh, whether they're trained or not, whether they're proficient or not, they find themselves in trouble just because they've gotten them into that gotten themselves into that situation that they can't get out of. And we don't want you to do that. So uh, what I'd love to see is is you after this episode go out there and grab an instructor, go into a simulator, get in the airplane, and do some flying uh, with the equipment that you have, and go through these scenarios and say, yeah, you know, I don't ever want to get caught in that. And if I am caught in this, go back to those those days when you were a private pilot and learn how to get yourself out of imc doing that 180 degree turn type of thing uh, and learn how to use all those features on the aircraft great points and uh, and i hope this actually adds to this the discussion and also adds to uh, the safety of your flying in the future but uh, anyway great discussion guys we could go on for hours about all this um a lot of this with some intro, especially with uh, uh, special VFR, and, and we kind of talked about that because a lot of people have been asking about it lately. Uh, but the most important thing is uh, try to stay safe out there. Get yourself an instrument rating if you're going to be uh, flying in in any type of lower visibility, lower clouds, and uh, just prevent yourself from doing this and in, in flying IFR or into ifr if you're your VFR. By making a, a really good decision, it's tough to do, I know, uh, but uh, but we want to see you be safe. We want to see you flying.
4: As I'm sure you've noticed, um, if you listen to the show before, one of my greatest passions is getting more women involved in aviation. This is because throughout my whole private and instrument training, um, I didn't meet or know another female pilot. So as much as I appreciated the male mentors in my life, um, I did miss that female connection, having someone I could relate to in the industry. Um, Currently, women only make up 6%. Actually, I think it might have gone up to seven now, finally, um, of the pilot population. And I know it's even less when it comes to the United States uh, military. So today we have two very special guests. And I just wanted to talk about the female pilots of aviation's past and present So first, you might have heard from our friend before, um, my dear friend, Erin Miller. Um, Her grandmother was a wasp. Welcome to the show, Erin.
5: Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here.
4: Now I'm kind of surprised when I talk to people about aviation and if I mention the wasp, some might not know uh, who these remarkable women are. Do you mind
5: sharing your story with us? Sure, the WASP stands for Women Air Force Service Pilots, and they were the first women to fly military planes for the United States Armed Forces during, and that happened during World War II. And my grandmother was one of those uh, women. There were 1,102 of the women who uh, made it through the program and eventually worked as a WASP.
4: Now, they had a a large fight ahead of them to get military um, benefits. And you were a major part of this with your grandmother when she passed away. Can you share um, what that was and how our other special guests came involved with this?
5: Okay. So during World War II, it's kind of a long story, but I have a short version. During World War II, these women were hired um, under the purview of the United States Army in a civilian capacity and never formally... Uh, inducted into the Army or commissioned as officers. There was a bill in Congress to make them part of the Army, but it failed in the summer of 1944. So the program was eventually canceled at the end of 1944, and those women were never formally made part of the Army. Because of that, uh, they went home, went about their lives, and were never recognized as veterans. In the 1970s, the Uh, Armed Forces uh, started talking about integrating the service academies to have women. The Air Force started talking about having female pilots and talking about, oh, we're going to have this new thing where we have women fly military planes. And my grandma and her friends were like, we did that 30 years ago, 35 years ago. Maybe we should tell people about this. (laughs) So they went to Congress and spent um, several years, actually took a long time, Uh, going to Congress and having various iterations of a bill go through Congress to have them retroactively recognized as veterans. And eventually in 1977, a bill from Senator Barry Goldwater had language incorporated in it that allowed the women Air Force Service pilots and any other groups who felt that they were in a similar situation to petition the Department of Defense for recognition as veterans retroactively so there were other groups like the merchant marines of world war ii who lost over nine thousand members during world war ii that were in similar kind of civilian capacities but not formally recognized as having done service for the armed forces
4: so eventually you actually had a good point there I w- i'm sorry to interrupt but That's i just okay. want to say um these women went and served flying aircraft for testing training other pilots in these aircraft And if they were to perish during this, which I think the number was 30, how how many women? 38. 38 passed away serving our country and they didn't, they had to like, their friends and family had to pay to get their bodies home. Like the military did not cover
5: this. Correct. The, uh, yeah, they were civilians. There was a stipend kind of for civilians who perished in work, which was a couple hundred dollars, but uh, for example, the service people at the time, their families would get sometimes $10,000. So there's a big difference there. And obviously the gold star, the flag on the casket, military honors, all that stuff, none of that was afforded to them. So there was a quite a difference there. So anyway, so in the 1970s, they got this bill passed and they petitioned to get recognized retroactively as veterans and eventually... My grandmother received her DD-214 in 1979, 35 years after she left service, which is the paperwork that Nicole knows well that lets you uh, show that you have served active duty in the United States Armed Forces. So at that point was when I came into the world, right? And I always saw my grandma as a veteran. She had a uniform and she gave talks and went around you know to the white house to show how she had served in world war ii i went to the world war ii memorial dedication with her down on the mall in washington dc and things like that but she passed away in 2015 and we applied to have her laid to rest at arlington national cemetery which is where she had requested to be and Uh, To our surprise, the cemetery rejected our application because shortly before my grandmother died, the Army had produced a memo saying that the wasps were not allowed to be at Arlington National Cemetery on their own merit. My grandmother's husband, I never met him, but my grandfather uh, had a medical condition. He could not serve in the armed forces. So a lot of the wasps buried in Arlington are buried with a spouse who was in the armed forces as well. So even though they may not have received, there was a period of time where they were buried there as a spouse and did not receive military honors. They were still allowed to be there. You know, there was kind of a separate argument over their funeral. My grandmother was, um, you know, we were trying to get her in there on her own merit as a wasp. And So my family and I decided to fight back and led a campaign to have a new law passed through Congress to amend the old law from the 70s to make sure that there was language added to require the army to recognize the service of the WASP as eligible for Arlington National Cemetery.
4: So this brought you to, you met so many interesting people along this journey and it was a long fight to get this done. Who who, who helped you
5: out? There was someone pretty cool. There were lots of people involved. And I you know, I wrote a book about all of this and I tried to kind of highlight the major people who were very helpful, but um, in Congress, uh, coincidentally, um, a few months before my grandmother passed away, there was a new freshman member of the House of Representatives from Arizona named Martha McSally, who was a retired Colonel from the United States Air Force, who flew A-10 uh, attack plane, which is a very weird, cool plane. And uh, she was actually the first woman for the Air Force to fly a a combat mission. And she happened to be in Congress and her staff found out about our problem and decided to, uh, that she could come forward and write legislation to help us. So that was very cool to have her there. Uh, And she actually knew some of the WASP because she had been in the Air Force for a long time and had met them at various events and things over the years.
4: All right. So we went from A-10s, women flying A-10s, helping you out on this mission. And guess what? You found a Thunderbird in the process as well. Who's this Thunderbird that you met throughout um, fighting for the wasp to be buried at Arlington?
5: So, Miss Retired Colonel Nicole Malakowski, United States Air Force. Um, Actually, Nicole has been in my life longer than that period. I just... uh, Nicole actually knew my grandmother, and that's how we know each other. So Nicole met my grandmother about eight, seven, eight years earlier, and then when my problem came up again, I already knew about Nicole, and I like to refer to Nicole as the granddaughter my grandmother really wanted. But um, <laughs> she loved Nicole; she spoke very highly of Nicole all the time, and so uh, you know, she, she Nicole was kind of in my tangential wasp family for several years before this bill in 2016 happened. So I will let Nicole explain her past and how the wasp came about um, to her. Well, thank you for that, Erin. I, um,
6: I do have very fond memories of your grandmother and I know that she was extraordinarily proud of you because we talked about you quite often. And what your listeners may not know is that Erin still works on behalf of veterans. She works at the Department of Veterans Affairs, making sure that our nation does right by our service members. Um, And so i honor her for that and for her service to our country in that capacity. Um, And she did an excellent job describing um, the history of the WASP. Um, One of the things that was really interesting is at the end of World War II, and I'll just be blunt, the walks were very unceremoniously disbanded. And what happened was not only did they not, were they not recognized for military service or given veterans benefits as Erin um, discussed, but because of the cultural paradigms and norms at the time, basically their history and their record, their contributions, right, to the entire free world were actually locked away. They were like stamped secret, put in the archives. And so as the books were being written, on the greatest generation as the books and the history books were being written on world war II and the history was being taught in our classrooms. The fact of the matter is, is that the wasp history was not in there. You know, so even as a young lady growing up, um, you know, I decided in 1979 that I wanted to be a fighter pilot after going to an air show, you know, even at that time, I didn't know that the wasp existed because the story had literally been hidden away in a vault. And so as I went kind of across my career, my first exposure to the WASP was when I was actually in in sixth grade. Um, uh, Top Gun had come out, right? I knew I wanted to be a fighter pilot. And I remember standing up in class one day, each of us had to pick a Friday. And my sixth grade teacher said, tell us what you want to be when you grow up and how you're going to get there. And I stood up and I said, I'm going to be a fighter pilot someday. And I couldn't even get the next words out of my mouth when he told me, that, that's actually against the law. It's not practical. And he actually said, sit down and come back another Friday when you have something more reasonable. Oh and I went home and just bawling my eyes out. I, w- I was just completely uh, didn't understand that there was a law against women flying fighters. I didn't understand why he felt that way. And my parents ended up taking me on a trip to the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. Because I love airplanes. And there in the far corner, it was a teeny tiny eight and a half, you know, by 11, tiny picture covered in dust in a dark corner were the pictures of these wasp, And there was a little teeny plaque describing their story. And all of a sudden, right, that light bulb came back on in my head. My heart came back alive. My dream and my spirit was restored by knowing their story. So fast forward with their legacy in my heart, at the age of 12, I moved forward. You know, to the Air Force Academy. I was lucky enough to be um, born at the right time. I was a sophomore at the Air Force Academy when the congressional ban on women flying fighters was lifted. So I enjoyed three operational tours in the F-15E, flew in combat, had a wonderful time, and ended up finding myself um, flying as a Thunderbird pilot. Now, I was a little bit blissfully ignorant at the time that being the first woman Thunderbird pilot was going to be a big deal. Um, I had never known an Air Force without women fighter pilots in it. I had been aware of the WASP legacy from a young age. But this interest, right, this media interest and intense spotlight kind of came on me because just of the uniqueness of the situation. And I remember going to one of my very first air shows. And after we landed, Our Air Force public affairs uh, personnel came over. They said, ma'am, we need you to move down the line here. There's some people we need to get you to who really want to meet you. We have to. And they'd never done this before. Usually I just interacted with whoever was there. And as they moved me down the line, there they were, a group of WASP with their beautiful signature blue scarf flapping in the wind, and they were sitting there wanting my autograph. Now think of how backwards this Uh is. Think of how Backwards it is, right? My heroes standing in front of me that made my dream come true, and it reignited. It was the first time I'd really met her, like an interactive with real life wasp. So as my Thunderbird uh, air shows progressed, I met wasp all over the country. I moved on and found myself as a White House fellow the next year. So here I am, a random major in the Air Force. As a White House fellow with access to people and places I should never have access to, haven't had access since, and I thought, what could I do? And I remember talking to so many WASP, including Aaron's grandmother, and it wasn't that they wanted recognition, they didn't want awards, they didn't care about medals. They wanted to correct the record. Correct the record. So, what can we do as a group and a team? To make sure that their story is finally brought out of the shadows and brought into our history books in its rightful place. And that's where this idea of the Congressional Gold Medal came to my mind. It gets pretty detailed, but long story short, I had a year. I went to the archives. I studied up and I drafted Senate Bill 614 on the fourth floor of my condo in Arlington, Virginia. And at that point, working alongside a lot of the WASP family and friends, the WASP that were still alive themselves, such as her grandmother, we moved forth with boots on Capitol Hill to get that Congressional Gold Medal done. And in 2010, we were able to correct the record at an official ceremony, awarding them the rightful Congressional Gold Medal.
4: You know, you got me thinking there. You had a teacher who basically could have ended your dreams right then and there, if you would have given up and just said, no, all right, I I believe him, I can't do this. But you had parents that were very supportive and brought you someplace that could show you, here, your dream can come true. Mm -hmm. And to think that the wasp are so forgotten just in this corner full of dust, it just makes me think that many women or young girls might not have the right introduction become pilots someday so you know um, how did you take that on as being a Thunderbird and Erin writing your book and sharing your story to encourage people that this past is very important to our present
5: well since uh, i've been coming involved in all of this and i'm i'm not a pilot so i don't know maybe i'll learn one day but it hasn't happened you yet No, i am a CFI uh, now so. i know just Victoria, saying my, we kind of live teacher, close teacher. <laughs> um anyway i i'm not a pilot but i grew up with my grandma i knew what she did her name was elaine Harmon, by the way i think i have neglected to say her name this whole time because i just call her my grandma but anyway um So I grew up around, she, you know, had flown planes, but she wasn't actively flying planes when I was growing up, but I was around it a lot. I have a cousin in my family who flew for the Navy, you know, my dad was in the, flew helicopters in Vietnam. It's not like I didn't know about flying or anything, but my grandmother was very insistent on us following our own dreams and doing what interests us. And she didn't try to like force us all to become pilots or anything. Um, so I knew it was very important and she really loved history. I read lots of history books and like biographies. I read Jackie Cochran's biography when I was, I don't know, eight years old or something like that. So I knew a lot about these people and I was always very surprised at school when other people didn't know about them. Other students um, would, you know, we didn't have Google when I was a kid. So I would say my grandma flew planes in World War II and other kids would say, that's not true. That didn't happen. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. And I actually met someone at Oshkosh I think it was last year. Another wasp, um, I think it was uh, her her nephew or something, said that his daughter, so great niece or something of this wasp, had explained in school, and this was not that long ago, that her grandma had flown in World War II, and she got called to the principal's office because the teacher thought she was lying and she was going to get in trouble, and then they had to go this whole thing about, you know, no, those are real people, and then, you know, it became a teaching moment, I guess. Anyway. Since that time and since this situation has arisen with my grandmother, I've become very involved with women in aviation and I've uh, helped coordinate several girls in aviation day and try to spread the, not just the history of the WASP, but the fact that the lessons from their, from their experience, it's not just like girls should become pilots. It's, it's about, you know, remembering our history, remembering things that have gone in the past and. I, I've talked to a lot of kids that do National History Day, and, and maybe they don't want to become pilots, but they love the story of the WASP and, you know, women doing something unusual at a time when a lot of women didn't even drive cars. And and I help kids that are interested in history learn that aspect of it. And then I also use my book to teach people about Congress and how bills work and, you know, all this stuff. Uh, activism that's going on now, that's great, but, like, how do you actually change the rules and change the law, right? This is how you do it, and so I help people explain explain that to people as well. But, yeah, my grandmother's thing was just, like Nicole said, they're all, they just want the history to be correct, have people know what they did, they don't want to be forgotten, it's not, like, about glory or, my grandma didn't think she was that great, and if you talked to her, she'd be like, well, I was one of the, like, not, you know, like, she didn't fly a test plane or do anything cool, it was she was, like, did the quote-unquote, like, boring wasp job and so she was very modest about all of this but she was very dedicated to speaking about what she had done and spent 50 years going out and giving talks about it.
6: Yeah you know she brings up a really interesting point I've had the privilege of meeting quite a few wasps over the years and I gotta tell you humility is probably their number one characteristic followed probably just like a dignified presence just their grit their perseverance everything about it but remember I mean take yourself back to world war II, the 1940s. I mean, it was unusual for women to be outside of the home. It was extra unusual for women, you know, to be flying aircraft, but why did they do what they do? Why did they became, become wasps? Because women can love their country too. And some women choose to show that, right? By wearing their nation's uniform. And the fact of the matter is, is that these wasps flew military aircraft. They lived on military bases. They wore military uniforms. They had a military schedule. The the injustice, you know, that they were denied those veterans benefits when they were unceremoniously disbanded, you know, was egregious and it needed to be corrected. And I hope that your listeners, you know, will will, maybe we can pique their interest. You know, you can Google stuff about the WASP now. Women Air Force Service pilots, go for it, learn their history, share their history. They flew every kind of military aircraft, fighter aircraft, bombers, transport. They did every kind of mission. They were instructor pilots, test pilots. Um, They were the type of people who were actually developing the aerial tactics that the men were using, you know, in the Pacific and the European theaters. You know, but what's interesting about this whole thing is that, you know, why, why were the WASP formed? The fact of the matter is that the air war in Europe was rough. We didn't have enough male pilots here in the continental United States to fulfill the roles I just mentioned, instructor pilots, you know, in order to have pilots, you need to create pilots. And there was a need. And it hit a point where the crisis situation of World War II was so big that society was willing to temporarily, overlooked these cultural paradigms that said women shouldn't be doing this. And not only shouldn't they be, they probably can't. They're probably not smart enough or skillful enough. But the WASP came along with their patriotism. They raised their hand and they say, I have a skill and I have a right to defend my country and love my country, too, and I want to serve. And that's what they did. And in spite of all of that, right, our, our nation decided to forget their history for decades. And so to be a part of the Congressional Gold Medal and then to see Erin Miller do what she did is just extraordinary. You know, yeah. when when the bill was signed into law to award the Congressional Gold Medal, I had the privilege of standing in the Oval Office. Um, then President Barack Obama is who signed it into law. And I was honored to be standing in that room next to Elaine Harmon. And that's how Erin and I overlap.
5: Yeah. So that is how we met. Um... Uh, through my grandmother, Nicole, working on her legislation for the gold medal. And then eventually after my grandmother passed away and I started working uh, to get the bill passed so my grandmother could be buried in Arlington, obviously I started meeting all these wonderful folks in the aviation community that I had heard wonderful things about but not necessarily met in person and met lots of new people that I didn't know about but had known my grandmother, lots and lots of them. Uh, Like so many people come up to me at air shows and events and say, I, I met your grandmother in a lecture once or whatever. So there's a lot of these folks out there. And Nicole is one of them. And like I said, my grandmother loved her like a, a non-biological granddaughter. <laughs> I loved her like a non-biological granddaughter. Oh, loved all
6: the wasps. You know, Victoria, you started out this podcast, we were talking about, you know, the low numbers of of women in aviation, whether that's in civilian or military flying and you know, things we can do in order to try to, you know, get those numbers higher. And, you know, what Erin did, right, you know, taking on that gnarly challenge of, of getting Arlington to do the right thing, of writing a book and sharing that story, of seizing opportunities like she is right now to share that story, you know, that's part of it. And I got to tell you, when I was a Thunderbird pilot, like I said, I, I traveled all over the country. And that's where I was really exposed to the WASP. I mean, I met so many of them in person. I, I heard their stories. And and prior to that, if I'm being honest, I, I think there was a a lack of maturity. Maybe it was just age where I used to get really uh, upset when people would describe me as the first woman Thunderbird pilot. Or they would call me the woman Thunderbird or woman fighter pilot. Because I felt like that qualifier, a woman didn't need to be there, right? I wanted to be a great known as a great Thunderbird. I wanted to be known as a great fighter pilot. But then as I started watching these wasps and I'm realizing what they had meant to me, I remember at my very first air show, walking to the autograph line after my very first show, I was exhausted, I was sweaty. I was just, thank goodness I made it through the show. I go to the autograph line and I remember it hit me. I looked up and in my line, There was, I'm not exaggerating, 100 people deep. I looked to my left and to the right to the male pilots who also had people in line, maybe a dozen, right? And then as I looked back at those 100 people standing in line for my autograph, they were all in that demographic, right? Young girls, ages 10 to 18. And that's when that light bulb came off and I connected the WASP story to mine and mine to future aviators, which was this, that it means something to see someone who looks like you succeeding. And so the more we share our stories, your story of flying with Turbo the dog in your children's books and Aaron's story of Arlington and maybe my story flying with the Thunderbirds and on and on, the more we share it, the more that we're going to expose these young women to what's in the art of the possible. And oh, by the way, we're also exposing young men to what's in the art of the possible for what their their female friends and colleagues you know, can do. And I think we need to tell these stories as young as we can get these young ladies. Doesn't mean they all need to go on and become pilots. Like Karen said, that's not the point. It's to let them know that that option is there, that that door is open should they choose to walk through. It. I am yeah, that's so glad I-
4: you made that point.
5: What I was going to say is that, yeah, that was one of my grandmother's big things. People are like, how can you not be a pilot? Your grandmother was a wasp and your dad, you know, received a distinguished flying cross for flying into combat in Vietnam in a helicopter. And I didn't mention this. My great-grandfather was also in the U.S. Army during World War One, And I have a cousin who flew for the Navy. I have it all over my, my family. But that just, and I was actually really interested in it. But somewhere along the way, I just started doing other things. There's so many different options in the world to do. And I'm fortunate to live here where we can uh, pursue many of those options. And I'm an attorney. And it's funny, Nicole brings up this woman pilot thing because I'm in this group with with Lucky where we talk about why are, especially Patty always says like, why is it woman pilot? No one says woman lawyer, or woman doctor. They just say doctor. And I'm like, you know, I, I bet back in the day they said that, but now that half of graduates from law school are women. And my sister is a veterinarian and they predict that, in in maybe 10 years 80% of veterinarians will be women nobody says women veterinarian right because mm-hmm. at, but back in the day in the 70s there were almost no women veterinarians but it's just like as these things evolve and there's more women like people stop saying that qualifier in front of it
4: i see that debate all the time about why do we have to yeah put the qualifier and i think it's our our duty in a way at times just Just to set ourselves aside to know that we put it here because it's a smaller group. And if my dad hadn't told me about, brought me to air shows and told me that this was something I could do, I would probably not be a pilot today. I think all of us has had someone introduce us to aviation or Aaron, I'm sure someone said something to you about law that just put that bug in your ear, whether you'll become a female cop or a female firefighter, you know, that's, it's that initial bug in the ear that brings those numbers up and gets people into unique jobs. And um, I mean, Nicole, I could watch you fly all day long at any air show. And you know, that's, that's the stuff that, you know, dreams are made out of. And I'm sure many girls, you know, looked up to the skies and all those girls in line to get your autograph. And I, I wonder if you could like, see how many became pilots because they saw you.
6: You know, it's so interesting, you know, that you bring that up because I want to be clear. It, it wasn't that they necessarily wanted my autograph. You know, they didn't know Nicole Malakowski. It wasn't like we were all gonna become, you know, the best of friends and stay in touch. What it was is that seeing me, a woman doing that, represented something to them. You know, made something inside of them feel moved you know, made something inside of them feel called to action. So it wasn't about, you know, Nicole Malachowski, but the idea that just by doing and following my dream, just by being myself, it could move other people in the direction of their dreams. And think about it. That's exactly what the wasp did for me, right? You know, when you heard me recount myself as a child, realizing the wasp, and to Aaron's point, the wasp are so much more than just pilots, it's so much more than just about airplanes. It's about following your dream. It's about leadership and teamwork and patriotism and these amazing characteristics and skills that we need America's youth to know about, to learn about the WASP because it's applicable regardless of what career you know, career field or industry a young person you know, decides to go into. Um, so their, their legacy is so much more than just flying airplanes.
5: Yeah, I try to explain in my book, people, like I said, ask me that, why are you a pilot, blah, blah, blah. And I say, well, my grandma wanted us to pursue our own interests, right? And so I was interested in aviation early, but also interested in a bunch of other stuff. And when I talk to young people today and you know, who read my book or are interested in the WASP and they're doing projects on it or whatever, one of the things I like to say is my grandmother always would say that everyone can serve their community or their nation in some way, right? We all have some talent or some knowledge or some something we can do to contribute and my grandmother at the time during world war ii like these other women said i have a pilot's license and i can apply for this program and see if i can uh, help serve my country and that's what she did but after that she even continued in our, our own local community here she was a volunteer at a literacy program she taught people to read i mean she did all kinds of other things that are not even aviation related so
6: you know um Victoria, you kind of—I kind of didn't answer your last question. I realized you said, "I wonder how many of those young gals, you know, who stood in line and and saw me fly became, you know, pilots or military pilots." I—I don't know that I'll I'll ever know the answer to that. But here's an interesting thing that happened today. I've been on Facebook Messenger all day catching up with this young lady. I'm going to tell you about. Um, My very first air show was in March of 2006. It was at Fort Smith, Arkansas. I told you I landed. I went to that autograph line and I realized, wow, there's a hundred young ladies standing in line to get my autograph because it means something to them. And the air force public affairs knew that this was kind of one of those moments they wanted to capture. So one of the singular pictures that I have of my time on the Thunderbirds is me signing my very first autograph. I'm leaning into this girl whose, our eyes are completely connected. She's looking at me as if I hung the moon. I'm smiling just because I was so happy to meet her, but also so thrilled to have made it through my first air show. I'd made it to the autograph line and I'm signing a hat. She was 13 years old. Her name is Sarah. And today she just returned from her first deployment flying F-15E strike eagles in Afghanistan.
5: Oh my That's awesome. <laughs> She was
6: 20-something years old. She went on to fly the same aircraft that I did and even trained in the same squadron that I learned to fly in. And so that's the point, right? The WASP didn't do what they did to be first or to get noticed. They did it because it was their dream and their way to serve. I didn't apply to be a Thunderbird to be the first. I did it because I wanted to be part of that mission. I wanted to be part of representing, recruiting, and retaining airmen in the world's greatest Air Force. I really did. You know, and now Sarah has moved forward to take, you know, the mantle and the torch in a whole new way. I mean, you can't walk into an Air Force fighter squadron today without seeing at least, you know, one woman represented. There's about 70 women fighter pilots in today's active duty Air Force, just to give your listeners kind of a idea of the numbers. And it's amazing. And Sarah's one of them. And the fact that I have a picture of her in 2006 as a 13-year-old girl, and here I am today texting with her about her deployment to Afghanistan. It's just unbelievable. And the WASP started all that. The WASP started all that.
4: You never know who you're going to be inspiring just by stepping into a school and telling your story about what you do.
6: You know, can, can we talk a little bit about numbers? Because I think, I know I've talked to Erin about this before. Um, she said earlier in World War II, there was 1,102 uh, women that flew as wasps. In today's active duty Air Force, now don't call Air Force Public Affairs on me, these are rough numbers. <laughs> there in the active duty Air Force, so I'm not talking Guard and Reserve, there are
5: 12,000 pilots. What's your guess on how many are women? I know the answer, so I'm not going to say, so I'm going to make Victoria answer. <laughs> oh,
4: gosh, put me on the spot. I always memorize my 6%, and I knew I know ATPs are like 1%, so... Am I doing a percentage or a number?
6: Just a number. Pick a number. Mm, I gosh, 1,000. Yeah, so there's 850 today. Oh, so close. So we had more women flying in the Army Air Corps in World War II than we have flying in today's active duty Air Force. Now, please don't mistake that there's, a, there's women flying in the reserves and the Guard and, of course, the other services. But even given that, I feel that's a shockingly no number. That's very yeah, there's twelve thousand active duty pilots in the Air Force. Of those three thousand ish are fighter pilots. Of those fighter pilots, about 70-ish are women today.
4: Wow. Just numbers to think on. Well, it really really puts it in perspective. I mean, did you did you feel some additional pressure? I mean, we keep saying the first female pilot Thunderbird. I mean, that must have come with a significant not to say burden, but um, weight to, you know, do better and to just show people that it can be done.
6: I mean, there was an additional magnifying glass. I did feel under the spotlight um, a few times. A couple things were in my favor, though. Um, one, in all sincerity, the gentlemen that I flew with were extraordinary. They never, they never treated me any different. But remember, they were my age, my peers. They never knew an Air Force without women fighter pilots. So to them, this wasn't a big deal. And so having that kind of insulation around me or that kind of, you know, personality around me was certainly very helpful. Um, Most of, you know, if there was any criticism of stuff actually generally came from outside of the military. Um, But because I had been a fighter pilot for so long and because I was insulated by a team of gentlemen who were perfectly fine, you know, we'd gone to combat together and why can't we fly air shows together kind of a thing. I think that made it easier. Now, so I didn't feel pressure from them. I did feel pressure that I put on myself, though. Um, and I'm, I've never really figured out how to eloquently say this. So stick with me. But the, the only pressure that I felt was self-imposed. And it was this. I wanted to open this door in a way that the door stayed open for other women to follow. I knew deeply that if I, quote, unquote, messed up, that I might ruin it for a couple years worth of women behind me. So the pressure I felt was to do this right and open the door in a way that the door stayed open.
4: Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. I think you did a very good job too. So thank you for keeping that door open for all of us.
6: You're kind. And there's been several um, women Thunderbird pilots after me and the current team right now, the lead solo, Michelle Curran, is out there rocking it. You know, she's been flying across the country in the America strong flybys and we're very, very proud of her.
5: I will say, Nicole, I used to talk to my grandmother about this and she said the exact same thing. The only thing, one of the few things I worried about when I was a wasp was not messing up because I didn't want people to say, see that wasp woman pilot, she messed up. And so now women can't do this. Like they messed it up for everybody. She used to say that to me. So mm-hmm. it's not just you.
4: <laughs> I think we are growing. I see it definitely. We've evolved as um. A race here that I'm getting less and less negative comments and seeing less and less of this women can't do this. And I think those generations are fading out. And I think it's becoming more the norm because really all the people at my airport, I got my CFI last year and it was all men that were supportive and helping me and um, giving me tips. And my flight instructor was the only female that I had going to at the time to help me out. And so I think it's it's becoming rare to see those negative words. And hopefully all the work that your grandmother do- has done and that you have done, Nicole, is really keeping that door open and people seeing that it's the norm. And we are equals here. We just are all here for the love of aviation.
1: A lot of times, uh, once we get our IFR jet ride done and we're ready to get out there in the system, we sometimes feel that there's, uh, you know, kind of a gap there because there's real life experience and there's also the training. We can never uh, have enough experience flying IFR and we're always learning. But, you know, there are some problems that uh, I think that, you know, Russ came up with that that really are repeated quite often. And Russ, you're very active in the IFR training environment. Uh, So um, I think this is something that we all find uh, when we finally get out there and fly with uh, instructors and i think it's a really good idea uh, and i think you would agree russ to hey get out there fly with your instructor do some real ifr world flying don't you
3: it is definitely i mean of course real world ifr flying is different than the check than checkride prep uh, you know no doubt about that uh you know when you're in training you're doing you know three four five approaches and you know all immediately back to back and then you go fly in the real world and you got you know an an hour or two and you fly one approach. Right. So, so it's a little bit different environment. Of course, you know, you, you may be talking with actual ATC instead of your instructor simulating ATC. You've got other people on the radio, you've got just a bunch of different things, you know, in, when you're flying real life art, it is just you, you know, often. So uh, there, are, so I kind of put together a list for this show of some things that, that I see repeatedly, Mostly when I'm doing instrument proficiency work, yeah, that, that seems to be a lot of what I do with people coming back to me and saying, yeah, hey, it's been a year since I flew any IFR. Let's go up a few times and fly. And of course, a lot of these uh, piles I fly with, I did not train for their instrument ratings, So uh, I get to see a lot of different techniques and things and, and some things that I like and some things I, I, I don't think are so great. And we'll talk about some of those today.
1: Well, that's great. And also, uh, Bill, you've been doing a little bit more with the instructing, and I know you went up and flew with one of our compadres, so it'll be kind of interesting uh, some of the things you've come up with in this list. So, um, guys, let's get started with it, though. So, uh, the first one, I think, uh, let's see, that would be Russ. The first one comes up with you. So, let's go ahead and, and dive into some of these things that uh, don't sometimes get covered during IFR training.
3: Yeah, so this, this is an interesting one that I see repeatedly. And you know, I always always taught and uh, that it's a good idea when you reach a final approach fix on any instrument approach, you've got everything set before that point. You reach the final approach fix, and you put the gear down, if applicable, of course. You make a uh, you know maybe a slight power adjustment, and then you pretty much do nothing else until you get the runway environment in sight. Uh, the idea, of course, is you're you're in the clouds. You know you uh, you want to have a nice stabilized approach. There are, I'm sure, some, you know, different uh, airplanes that require different techniques and such. But in general, for for the light GA aircraft I've been flying, I teach once you're passive faff, before you break out of the clouds, you do nothing to change your configuration. Nothing. Uh, That that includes, you know, not, you know, pushing the prop lever up or, uh, you know, putting in more flaps or, you know. Dramatically changing the power, you know, unless you need to, you should have all that set. And it's, it's interesting because, um, (laughs) I was, you know, I I do kind of, like I said, kind of preach this and I was flying with flying with a pilot eh, a month or two ago and and he uh, and we're coming down final, and, and this is, again, just a proficiency flight. This is not a real, you know, not training for a checkride or anything. And he's coming down final, and he's just got the the needles are nailed. I mean, they are locked in. I thought the indicator was broken, you know. So, uh, And he's perfect. And then about halfway down final, I guess he, he, he thought, oh, I, I need to have another notch of flaps to land. So he puts in our notch of flaps real quick, and I just kind of watch him because I've told him this before. And sure enough, what happened? He put in a notch of flaps. He ballooned up. Um, he went above glide slope and he spent the rest, you know, the next two or three miles of final trying to get everything back and situated. He was nailed before. And then he put in that one notch of flaps and it made his life so much harder. <laughs> so, uh, so, and then after that, he said, man, now I see why you, you don't want me to do anything. And I'm like, well, yeah, you know, if, unless your airplane requires it or, you know, you're, I don't know. Oh, Carl, tell me. So in the airline world, how does this work?
1: Yeah, so normally we are uh, configured. We we continually decelerate where I work and uh, mostly configured by the final approach fix. So I can't say it's a hard, fast rule. Uh, But, you know, we have a, a... we have to be at 1,000 feet stable, which one of the things includes configuration. So we have to be totally configured. There are some instances where we aren't fully configured at the final approach fix. Uh, and that actually is something that, especially when you're flying real fast, if you really are not already slowed down and you're not configured, can really bite you. Uh, but yeah, we we actually, it, it's a little bit different, but in general, you're right. I mean, we want to be pretty much configured have most of all of our checklists done. But uh, you, you'd be surprised uh, how late we finally get the final set of flaps. But with that said, we're flying with two people all the time. Oh. So when I'm asking for the flaps, I'm telling someone else to do it. I'm concentrating on flying the plane. I'm not concentrating on any of those configurations. So that's the that's the difference here, I think, is, is we have lots of other people helping us in the cockpit. So I, I agree. When I'm flying alone, IFR, I try not to change a darn thing except i will do you know obviously a a checklist at the end say oh did i do my uh did i push the prop lever forward or uh accidentally if i didn't i'm just checking them i'm not configuring i think that's kind of the point we're trying to make here
3: yeah i think uh, and what you said was a good point about having a two-person crew there carl i mean you know light ga you know it's just us our focus really needs to be on on flying that final keeping those needles centered Uh, in in virtually all light ga airplanes if you break out anywhere above minimums you're going to have plenty of time if you want to get in more flaps or do anything like that you're going to have plenty of time let I me mean, think about a you know a, a 172 even if you break out a 200 feet you still got like you know 30 seconds before you get to the runway right so you got tons of time uh, to if you really need to reconfigure but plus you know generally you know you only need a couple thousand feet to land most, uh, you know, like GA airplanes. So, you know, if you got a 5,000, 8,000, 10,000 foot runway, you got lots, lots of room there. Don't worry about it too much.
1: So, again, when you say uh, configure a final approach fix, I think you said this the airspeed's one of those big ones too, as far as not reconfiguring there. I mean, you're set, everything's done.
3: Yeah, I like to have everything done airspeed's on so, the, the gear, the flaps, the power is set, uh, everything as much as possible.
1: So I see a lot of people, especially in GA, reconfiguring as far as their speed is concerned after the final approach fix, and that that throws them. I like what you gave as the example of the flaps, but uh, you know you see people having it have everything nailed, and then they decide, you know what, I'm going to slow down 10, 15 knots, and then it just goes off the rails. Uh, even that can actually uh, run. If you're really experienced, I get it. There's people out to say I do that all the time. I understand. But in general, how much do we, you know, really fly IFR
3: down to minimums? It's it's a real good idea to. Be, to be configured. Yeah, yeah, you know, you know, it's interesting, Carlos, with the airspeed too, because I've seen exactly that. You know, where someone's coming down real fast, or maybe a little faster, and they say, "Okay, I'm going to slow down." Even if they're using the autopilot, that can cause problems. Uh, they pull the power back. Well, okay, the autopilot needs to make some trim changes. Well, depending on how fast the autopilot reacts, in a lot of them, they end up going below glide path and. Well, then they see that, so they push the power up, and then then it just becomes monkeying with the throttle to help the autopilot stay on track. So, yeah, don't use your autopilot to help you. Don't try to fight it.
1: Right. That's for sure. So I think that's some great advice. Uh, Try not to configure after a final approach fix. Obviously, if you have to, you have to, like if you forgot to put the gear down. Also, uh, if you're not configured beyond that, and I know we talk about being stabilized, uh, there's one other thing we can do, right? We can always, you know, fly the mist and go around. Go around. Yeah. And that's something I think we, uh, as a matter of fact, that, I was looking at that today, watching someone do an approach, and after about the third bounce on the on the landing, I was I was wishing the person would go around. It's kind of the same thing, is that you know if we we aren't ready to land and uh, we aren't configured properly, it's just just go around, go do the mist. Uh, which brings up the other point, you know, you should always have that in the back of your mind, right? Uh, as far as going, it should always be a missed approach in your mind. Uh, that's for sure. So I like the idea. Final approach fix, uh, no configuration changes. Uh, so what what are some of the other things that uh, you came up with? That you, uh, if if that's enough, you want to talk about there? Uh, yeah, I,
3: th- I think that's that's good. There, of course, if anybody has any feedback, they're certainly welcome to write in, and we'll we'll handle that on our show definitely. Um, okay, the other one, and uh, we had talked about uh, and interviewed the uh, the pod- the host for opposing bases. Uh, they did a podcast a few episodes ago, number one twenty six, uh, where they talked about. Vectors to final, and I thought it was really very interesting because it was about how air traffic controllers have to kind of you know, how the geometry works out when they're giving you vectors to final and the intercept angles and how your speed you know, affects where they turn you and you know if they're trying to get you in tighter then they're really you know have a narrow window to get you it's just really interesting and in all this all the considerations they have, but there's a couple things that I thought of after that 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 relate to the pilot side of the equation and. One of these is if you understand the the considerations that ATC has, uh, you'll see why this is this can be a bit of a problem. And that's where and I, I see this a lot, where the, the controller goes through the whole: your five miles from final approach fix, turn right, heading one five zero, maintain at or above three thousand till established on the localizer, cleared for the ILS approach. Right. The most important part of that whole thing is that turn, right? The turn to heading one five zero. So, well, then what what do we get? We get the Pilot reading it back, they read back five miles from the final approach fix, turn right heading 150, maintain air about 3000, cleared approach. Usually they say it a little bit slower now as you're trying to write numbers down or whatever. And all this time, the airplane's still moving, right? It's still moving towards that final approach course. And and I've seen it where this whole process of the controller reading instructions, then the pilot reading instructions, and then the pilot you know making sure it writes it down, and then maybe turn, then maybe turning the heading bug and then turning the airplane can take quite a while. Meanwhile, that that course line maybe has passed you by now, or you know maybe it, it it's becoming really really tight. So, what I try to do is, number one, you should have a pretty good idea what that heading is going to be. It's going to be about thirty degrees to final, so you can figure ahead of time what what the turn is going to be, so you know it's coming. And once that controller starts giving me that clearance and includes the heading. I'm probably going to start the heading and then then worry about reading the rest of it. That's a little bit of a technique thing. You know, not everybody may agree with that. You know, they might want the whole thing to be done, but I found that that works out pretty well in most cases where you just get the turn started as you're reading it back. So
1: with that said, do you think it's a, I think so. one of the things that's, a nuance here is the fact that you talked about visualizing, you know, where you are going to turn and in which direction, that type of thing. So it's probably a a really good idea to keep a step ahead uh, and, and kind of visualize what the next turn is going to be. I know that can bite you also, but it's good to visualize what you think might be the next turn, right?
3: Oh, absolutely. And of course, now with moving maps, it's, it's vastly easier than it used to be. But, uh, you know, if you should be always keeping track of where you are and what you're going to be, uh, Probably going to be issued. So in my case, you know, if I expected to get a one five zero and I didn't get it, and I went through final, well, now I know that he's probably going to give me a different vector to get back to final, right? So I should have that good situational awareness, and and that really feeds into kind of a a second topic as well uh, with situational awareness. So thanks for bringing that up. Is that when you get that you know, in my case heading one five zero to intercept the final approach course? In the past, before moving maps, we didn't really know where that was going to have us intercept final. We just had to trust that the controller was, you know, putting us in a good spot. But I've seen numerous cases, and you know, if it's windy or whatever, where that heading that they assigned is not really going to work out. It might cause me to intercept final. After the final approach fix, for example, or really, really close to it, where I'm not going to have much of a chance to descend if I still need to, or to get lined up, or get in, get things configured and set, which we talked about in the first point. So keep your situational awareness. If you know if you're looking on your iPad or on your uh, your GPS, and if it doesn't look like it's going to work out quite right, let the controller know. You know, say, "Hey, I, I need 10, 10 more left for." It, you know, to make this work, whatever. Hey, can you give me 10 left? And uh, they're not going to have a problem with that because, <laughs> because if it doesn't work, then you're going to go missed and just mess up their whole plan anyway. Right. So yeah, they, they want it to work. They're not going to have a problem with that. So, so just like you were saying, Carl, keep that situational awareness and, and use some, you know, your, your background and experience in pilot and you know, Hey, this isn't going to work <laughs> and let them know.
1: Yeah. Query the controller. I think that's really important. And, you know, it's like they and they'll give you a heads up. Usually if you're sitting there and you get anxious and you're like, gosh, you know, are they going to turn me? And usually they'll tell you they should tell you if they're going to turn you or fly you, excuse me, across final. Right. Uh, But it is a good idea to ask, especially if they're not too busy. Now, if they're super busy, you have that conundrum. Do you want to do you want to actually interrupt them? Uh, and then sometimes I'll come out and says, yes, I know. I flew you through final turn left heading, you know, zero nine zero intercept the final approach course. And that happens. Uh, so there, there's some judgment there, right?
3: Well, there is certainly. And I remember one case where I was, uh, what was it? I was, ve- they, they took me across final and then they gave me a vector that was going to reintercept, but I could tell by the geometry of it. It wasn't, it wasn't going to work if I took that new heading to intercept from the other side. So I just told the controller, that's not going to work. <laughs> you know, give 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 me give me a box back around, and, and the controller just took me out and you know, boxed me around, and yeah, you know, it added four minutes to the flight or you know, something like that. It was no big deal.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting when we a lot of times we think that the controller is making a mistake or whatever, and and you know what, and sometimes they. They have a change. There's a change in wind direction. There's one other thing that I always suggest to people in this situation is, if you can do it, and the controllers love this, is tell them, you know, what's the winds at your altitude? Because most of us have those readouts on our iPads or uh, on our GPS that tell us what the winds are. That is a, a huge help, especially if you see the winds changing rapidly and. And that could be really different between say three, four thousand feet in the ground, and that alone ha- alleviates a lot of the problems with uh, and if you constantly hear a controller maybe missing the turn sometimes it 's best to kind of tell them that so uh, really good great example though, but uh, knowing when the vector of the final isn 't working out uh, it's it 's you know upon both of us the controllers and also uh, and the pilots to make sure that we let somebody know that 's for sure.
3: So, what's the next one we have on the list here, Russ? Okay, one more for me for now, and then I'll take a little break. All right. So, mm-hmm. uh, this this is a simple one. I think many people probably know this, but uh, but it's really useful, when, when, especially when you're when you're trying to track a, a course down final. Um, most of us have, you know, some kind of a uh, you know magenta line display, and this this does maybe cross into the area of following the magenta line, but it sure is a useful trick, <laughs> okay? Um, so you've got a, a wind correction. You're coming down fine and you've got a wind correction, right? So maybe it's, you know, five, seven degrees or something, right? To, to one side. If you, if you, as you're flying your heading and trying to figure out what that wind correction is, if you look over at your GPS and see, hey, that ma- magenta line, my track line is pointing straight up well, that's your wind correction. That means whatever heading you're on now is what you need to maintain that track. You know, so, so if you see that magenta line straight up and down, put your heading bug on whatever heading you're on right now. And and that will work for a while <laughs> until you descend in the changing changing wind or something. But uh, But that's a, an extremely useful technique and takes a lot of the guesswork that we used to have to put into figuring out that wind correction. So pretty simple, but it's very effective.
1: So basically, you know, keep your heading bug centered uh, on whatever you know your heading is to track uh, that course inbound. Uh, so that's that's quite important because uh, you know you may that gives you so much situational awareness, uh, especially on a go around too, you know, or on a missed approach, uh, either one that helps out quite a bit. Uh, so really, that's some great advice. Uh, how many of us do that? I'm not sure, uh, and I'm sure that some. I've seen some that auto uh, center that heading bug. So that's kind of interesting too. Uh, Or when you, and and it's different on every airplane, a lot of different planes I've flown. So say you pull the heading bug or something like that, it'll center it to whatever heading you're on. Uh, So some awesome advice. Great stuff there, uh, Russ. I'm going to kind of jump in with that whole thing too. Um, And these are great useful tools. That's for sure. Um, And, you know, the the track, you talk about the course and the track, and basically our course is, you know, basically the between, say you're flying between two different airports, that's going to be your course. You may have to go to a VOR and change direction, etc. But I think this word track, um, a lot of people get confused of, and that's basically uh, along the ground. Uh, what you're following is a good, uh, simple description of what that track is. Uh, and one of the things that I've noticed is, as we start flying, uh, we wind up referring to track and referring to course. And in most of our, our you know, GPSs these days, like for instance, on the 430, let's use something I know. It has this desired track to get to your uh, de- destination and, uh, you know, it figures out, you know, what, what you're supposed to fly, that heading, it'll actually come up on the heading bug. Like you said, you can center that. Uh, and if you hit the nav mode on your GPS, of course, you're you're going along that desired track over the ground. Um, but one of the things is, is that a lot of times, like you said, the, the heading and the course and the track don't match. And you're like, well, why is that? And obviously, it's never calm winds, is it? So that's one of the solutions there. And we sometimes... I find we forget about that. That's one of those skills um, that actually goes away sometimes. Uh, So it's really, really important. Uh, So, also, when we're talking about track, because this happens sometimes, we ask for uh, we want to be 20 miles to the right of our track, which a lot of these GPSs can do. We need to specify that. Um, If we're going to do that, Uh, We also need to specify some of these folks go fly down in the Caribbean, especially, you know, from Florida and stuff. And we fly these tracks and we might be out of radar contact for a while, et cetera. And and then we wind up, you know, talking to the controller and saying, I'm going to turn right 20. Well, 20, what, 20 degrees, 20 nautical miles to the right of my track. And so that's really important to understand that term. I know that that's going to, happen you know to some people where they're not used to doing the tracks and stuff so kind of keep that in mind that if you're talking course there's a course there's a heading heading is the heading you're flying uh, looking at your heading bug that type of thing and so be really careful when that happens uh, and so one of the things that we really need to do is make sure that we understand that whole track and that whole course but uh, basically tracks you know it's going to be going along the, the ground. So when you are talking to a controller and he says, or she says to you, you know, turn right to a heading, you know, that's a heading uh, and you turn left, intercept the course, you know how to intercept that course to your destination. It could be, and that changes along the way. It also, if we're told to be 20 nautical miles right of our track, we know what to do. Uh, so, that leads to something else, especially for some of those that are starting to fly a little more advanced and going out over the water a little bit, you know, out of radar and there's some, you know, no no coverages, especially, you know, we're talking in the Bahamas over the Gulf of Mexico. I know a lot of folks that do that, uh, you know, that whatever aircraft you're flying, 210, et cetera. One thing that we get confused on is we'll go out over the water or in general, not just over the water, we talk about this term radar contact. And that radar contact, and I think a lot of people don't realize that we have radar contact. Uh, that's meaning that the controller has radar contact with your aircraft. They are giving you, they're, they are actually now telling you, I see you, right? Okay, that's radar contact. So at that point, we have to figure, okay, if I have radar contact, does that mean I'm getting separation and also i'm going to be clear of terrain and that's not the case not until they start giving you a heading and you start nav- they give you a navigation will you actually get that type of separation and this is what's interesting it happens right away for most people so say that you're flying and the guy and the controller says the guy or gal says radar contact turn left to heading 050 intercept victor 152 uh, at that point yes Uh, So there is going to be some separation uh, from terrain and traffic. But if they just say radar contact, not yet. You know, it's radar contact, standby. uh, And then eventually they're going to give you an actual heading uh, and vectors or direct to. And that means they're giving you separation. So I think that's a subtle difference. Same thing happens when we're taking off, you know, it's radar contact uh on on a departure say and that's something that we see a, a lot of times obviously uh getting back to something we see on like a 172 radar contact and then shortly after you might hear turn left heading to you know 050 climb maintain 3000 or they may say turn left direct to X Y Z V O R. now they're giving you that separation from terrain and traffic so, so it's a it's something i think we don't We don't really realize when that radar contact said, because normally right after they say it, they start giving us a vector and navigation. Uh, So there's a a subtle difference there. Listen for it uh, and uh, just know that you really need to make sure that you're clear of uh, terrain. Uh, while uh, you are under radar contact, but not being vectored or they're uh, sending you towards a navigational aid. So, so that was my uh, little thing about radar contact. I think that's something that's really, really important. Uh, and it keeps you clear of terrain and it's your own responsibility. Another thing that I think is important is keeping clear of terrain during uh, your departures. And actually, this is, uh, this is Russ's topic. So, Russ, I will actually hand you over to that one uh, as far as the, the SIDS and the, and the climb
3: gradients. Okay, great, Carl. Yeah, uh, I, I got my instrument rating in uh, Southeast Virginia, very coastal, very flat. I don't remember actually even talking about <laughs> departure procedures, being quizzed on them, having anything in my check ride about them, anything. Uh, so it took, you know, after that, after I started flying, you know, real IFR, like you talked about in the beginning, to, to figure some of that stuff out because they're just in many parts of the country, there just is not this concern. You don't have really any obstacles. A lot of the US is pretty flat,, <laughs> you know, but, but you get into the mountainous areas and you have climb gradients uh, on departure procedures. Uh, which if, if you have covered departure procedures uh, in your training, you should be well aware of climb gradients. Um, if you haven't, you know, you definitely get that way. I mean you know, the, the concern is, of course, there's a mountain in front of you or off to the side, the way you're turning or whatever. And your airplane has to be capable of climbing at least that steep. Now these climb gradients are specified in feet per nautical mile, not feet per minute, like we usually think of. Um, so it might say you know, the climb gradient requirement is 300 feet per nautical mile. And so you got to do some math Well, there's tables, both in the uh, FA publications and the Jefferson publications about, you know, if you're climbing out at 90 knots or 120 knots or whatever, what climb, um, rate that requires so you can do that calculation and if you can't make it well you need to pick a different departure or pick a different day or wait till the weather clears or or unload some cargo or you know so you can make the claim or whatever but there's there are surprisingly climb gradients in places that you might not expect and that's really what i wanted to mention here on on some of these sids these standard instrument departures i mean there's there are several right here in Oklahoma City. Now, Oklahoma City is not known for being very mountainous, right? We don't have a whole lot of obstacles. We've got t- some tall antenna towers around, but uh, they're usually out of the way. Um, but some of these uh, SIDS have on them uh, a climb grain requirement of 500 feet per nautical mile to, uh, although what I was looking at here was to about 800 feet above the ground. 500 feet per nautical mile... Well, Carl, for your fancy uh, shiny jet there, that may not be a problem. But, you know, if you're taking off in a 172, climbing at 90 knots, 500 feet per mile requires a 750 foot per minute climb rate. That's pretty sporty for a 172, you know, especially if it's a hot day and you got all your friends on board, whatever, right? So can you make that climb gradient? If you can't, you shouldn't accept that SID.
1: How how do you figure that out, uh, Russ? As far as trying to f- uh, figure out what if you can make that
3: climb gradient and well, uh, all, all flight instructors have a building calculator in calculator and a head is issued to us, <laughs> which is what, how I did that. Now, um, you know there there is probably a rule of thumb, and if you know it, Carl, please tell me because I really don't know it. But uh, there are tables in uh, in both the FA and the Jet books that will tell you that uh, it's you know you can basically figure that at sixty knots you're going one mile forward every minute, right? And, and go mm-hmm. from there. So uh, for a 500 foot per mile climb gradient, if you're going climbing at 120 knots, you got to be able to do a thousand feet a minute. Uh, and if, like I said, if, if you can't, well, pick a different departure. You don't accept that clearance or do something to, uh, that you, so, to make, so you can make that climb gradient.
1: So I, I guess something even more rudimentary than that is that, and this is something I don't think we do often enough, and uh, get some heat from this. We could look at our manuals, right, and figure out can we do a thousand feet per minute? Maybe we can. Uh, maybe we're the only one on the airplane and, yeah, uh, sure. you know, I know my Cherokee could do it with just me in the airplane. If I put Bill in, no, but, uh,
7: speak for yourself,
1: <laughs> but, but it's not Bill, not, you know, it's just adding a little bit extra weight would, would not allow me to go a thousand feet per minute. That's what I'm trying to say, Bill, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, we, yeah.
7: we were dogging in the diamond with both of us in it on that hot day. This, this
1: is yeah, true. Yeah. But where do we find that info it, it's at actually in the POH and uh, and actually you know you talk about four flight there's some tools in there and we talk, and other tools I hate to just say for flight but there's other programs out there that you can figure out hey can I do the required climb gradient it, it'll figure the whole thing out for you if you just plug in the gradient it'll give you what type of feet per minute you, you need to do and then you can go back in and see if your airplane can do it for the conditions for that day uh, it, It's something I, I think we really should start doing more of. It's kind of like doing weight and balance every time we go out and fly. Of course we do that, right? And uh well, it's not not always. And I know that there are a lot of people have them memorized for certain certain ranges, but uh especially when you start bringing on more people, more bags. Uh so that's kind of the point I, I wanted to bring home there is, yeah, let's look at our manuals uh to see if we can make it.
7: And take a careful look at that that airport that you're climbing out of as well. You may have different options. Um, you, you kind of mentioned that a little bit. You know, the normal uh, departure might say something like, Russell, you know, 500 feet per mile. Uh, but you may have another option. There may be a published visual climb over airport um, or a different route that you could take um, in order to to let you get out of there. So uh, that may be kind of buried there inside the chart supplement um, or somewhere, but you you may have more than one way. Uh, Just gonna cat.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you said that because there, and and I think we may have mentioned a little bit here, but look at your obstacle departure procedures. Um, It's a good habit to get into because I fly out of Tampa all the time. So, I'm like, well, I'm, I'm not going to have too many issues. But if I go, let's see, if I go east, um, there is an obstacle departure p- procedure. it's like, Tampa, it's a flat city. Well, if you're going east from the airport, uh, it tells you, I think it's like 800 feet, that you can't turn uh, south, I think it is, till you get to 800 feet. Why is that? that well, downtown, there's some buildings there. Uh, and these are things sometimes we don't think about. So I, and this is something I've, finally gotten back into i will say i've drifted a little bit over the years and uh away from doing this but i do now i look i make sure i stop for one second and look at odp's or the obstacle departure procedures uh so that des- describes you know when i can you know when i can turn i can get to 800 feet uh, before i make a right turn incredibly important especially for uh, areas that are mountainous, and sometimes we look at those there, but we don't do it like in Oklahoma City, which seems pretty flat, uh, and, and we don't review those, do we?
3: we might but, not, but uh, we should.
1: Yeah, definitely should start start doing that type of thing. So, um, anyway, so good stuff there. Um, how about the next? Uh, as oh, is that it for the sids? What else did we want to?
3: Well, no, talk? that's it. That's it for the sids. But actually, your, your whole talk about the performance charts and all really goes into the next topic there, which is uh, of a special concern to multi-engine airplanes. Uh, anyone who has a multi-engine rating uh, is familiar with accelerate go distances, which is how far it's going to take that airplane to lose the engine at the most critical moment, but continue the takeoff and get to 50 feet above the ground. Right, um, So that distance is can be really long, <laughs> especially on a hot day, a heavily loaded airplane uh, with minimal performance or whatever. Well, we calculate this accelerate go distance and find out, oh, it's, you know, 8,000 feet or whatever it is. And the runway's 5,000 feet, but there's nothing off the end as far as we know. So we're okay, fine. Right. If that's, a, if that's our, our judgment call. Um, but there is something that can really help us out with making that decision, and that's the takeoff obstacles listing. So it's kind of related to what we're talking about, about departure procedures, but it's another thing that, mm-hmm. that was not covered in my instrument training at all <laughs> um, was, you now I I still talk about the book, you know, the, the chart book, you know, in the yeah. front is all the of the fa books are all the the takeoff obstacles um and jeppesen has them too of course they're you know in our our flight or a garment pilot whatever they're in their own separate sections there but if if an airport has a instrument approach it has therefore then been also evaluated for some kind of a departure procedure and if there are You know, little, you know, low obstacles out there that are pretty close in, those are identified in the takeoff obstacles list. And this might say something like uh, tree 1,000 feet from the departure end of the runway, 20 feet right of center line, you know, up to 100 feet AGL or something like that, Okay. Well, that tells you there's something. You know, it could be a pole or a you know fence if it's low enough, or a building, or you know power lines or whatever. But it tells you where they are and how far they are from the departure end of the runway. Well, if you know how far they are from the departure end of the runway, you can add your runway length and figure out how far they are from where you're starting your takeoff roll, and use that to help figure out is my accelerate go distance adequate? Am I, am I going to be okay? Um, I actually, I actually used exactly this on my ATP check ride uh, an FAA uh, inspector was evaluating my check ride you know with my examiner, and he wanted to ride along and that was fine. I had no problem with that, but uh, you know I wanted to show I was doing my diligent flight planning, and we realized that our accelerate go distance wasn't going to clear the trees that were charted at, in the takeoff obstacles. and you know so we. He wanted to come along to ride, so I ran the numbers a few different times. So no, it's not going to work. Not going to work. Eventually, we settled it. We did most of the check ride without him, and then uh, he hopped on for you know one or two approaches at the end once we had burned off enough gas to go and make this accelerate go distance work. So um, it was uh, it, it was very interesting to me how something that you know really pay a whole lot of attention to these you know there's a fence four feet from the end of the runway up to you know one foot above the ground you don't pay attention to that stuff and it becomes kind of in the back of our mind somewhere but then you see this well, there's you know a, a building you know 500 feet off the end of the runway or something like that that, that really wakes you up so uh single engine of course well it's just another obstacle you know, out there that you have to make it over but multi-engine of course you have more um more planning factors and considerations that go into that so that's another This is I was saying, it's another place to get your data to help make your decision.
1: Yeah, some uh, great information as far as uh, everything that's around you as far as situational awareness. Uh, like you were saying there, I mean, it really does, especially if you have a problem uh, and you know where to start looking for those obstacles and, uh, you know, where you might even want to think about putting down, et cetera. So some uh, real good stuff, really, really good stuff. Uh, multi-engine aircraft. Uh, you know, we talk about light twins. Everybody says, "Well, you know, the accelerate." There is no accelerate go distance, but uh, you know, there is. In, in the light twin, you can actually depart, climb, and uh, and come back depending again on your weight and your situation. That's where you go back to your manuals and sh- check out the weight and balance and see if yeah, can I climb? How far? How far can I climb? How how high can I climb? Excuse me. What's my rate of climb gonna be? Uh, single engine. And those are the kind of things I think sometimes we forget to do uh, because when we're flying a twin, we start flying out of bigger airports. But I will say, one of my students that really saved him. Uh, he he figured it out. He actually lost an engine on takeoff and just came back around and landed. Uh, so it's really a good idea to look at those charts. Uh, big believer in that. So I think I drove that home. Um, anyway, so. How about, um, let's see, that was great discussion, by the way, uh, Russ. I really enjoyed that. Um, how about for those of us that, you know, I fly a lot of times out of fields that uh, really can't talk to air traffic control. So I think, Bill, you had came out, come up with some, uh, some good tips there.
7: Yeah, we had a couple. Um, I, it sounds like we've got sort of a theme that uh, a lot of things that aren't getting covered in instrument training have to do with how to get the heck out of an airport. Um, and I – you know, we, we talked some about, uh, like Russ mentioned, a lot of our IFR training, we're doing the same thing over and over. Um, typically, you might be training at a towered airport or, a, or a, a non-towered airport that has good communication. Now you get your rating and you're going to go out there, stretch your legs, go someplace different. Might be at more of a, uh, a remote airport. and, I, Or if you did do that during your training with your instructor, you weren't going to go through all the, um, all the different things you have to do to to talk to ATC, to deal with getting a clearance out of a remote airport because it takes some time. Um, one of those things is a, a technique that's used by by ATC to give you a clearance, to get you out of a remote airport uh, where there might not be direct communication with air traffic is the clearance void time. Uh, controllers will abbreviate it VIFNO, void if not off by. What that means is you're getting your clearance to leave this remote airport um, through some other means than talking directly to a controller. There might be a radio relay to flight service. Uh, If they're still around anymore, there's a handful of ways where you used to be able to talk through a VOR. That's kind of going away now with a lot of VORs getting decommissioned. Of course, you can do with a cell phone as well. You can call flight service, the 1-800-WX brief number, and have them deliver your clearance to you. But they're not really giving you the clearance. They're talking to the air traffic facility that is in charge of that airport it might be a, a, an approach control. that could be 50, 60 miles away even, or a center that could be hundreds of miles away from where you're actually at. And they're setting up your clearance. Flight service will relay it to you. The controllers can't see you. They don't know where you are on the airport. Um, probably can't see you for some time after you depart. And there's really no other way to separate you other than use some non-radar procedures and blocking airspace, um, keeping other people from uh, going into that airport, of course, or. Um, leaving you an altitude that you can get to, to get out of that airport. Well, they can't do that forever. Can't block up a chunk of airspace forever for you to come off of this airport to, uh, to the next fix or airway or whatever. So what they will do with the clearance is give you a time, uh, time check. Now clearance is void. If not off by, you know, whatever it is, one eight, three, zero Zulu. If not off by that time, your clearance is void, it's no good anymore, and you need to call back to flight service and figure out plan B, whatever that means. They'll usually give you five or ten minutes uh, after that um, phone call to give yourself some time, get out to the runway, do your run-up or whatever you need to do, um, and then they'll give you about a ten-minute window um, to actually get off. So if your wheels are not off the ground, by that time, you no longer have a clearance, and you got to figure out some plan B because they're only blocking that airspace for that amount of time. Now you're coming off this um, remote airport, non-towered, um, probably not radar. And the uh, the clearance may have this feeds right into another technique that's sometimes used by ATC. That's a little confusing to people. You're out, you're actually in uncontrolled airspace you're in class G airspace. When you depart that airport, maybe to 700 feet, maybe to 1200 feet, depending on where you are, ATC really can't give you instructions and can't give you a clearance in class G airspace. You will occasionally hear an instruction where the controller will say something like, um, upon entering controlled airspace, heading 360 to join uh, Victor123, and then so on and so forth, you're rooting. that's that's not a radar vector. You haven't been radar identified like Carl mentioned earlier. Um, you're not being uh, given any type of clearance from terrain. That's still all on you. Fly an obstacle departure procedure if there's one um, that applies and, and you feel that's the best way to do it. Figure it out yourself with a chart however you need to do it um, to miss terrain. They're just telling you go that away uh, to join the airway or head for the next fix. Not a radar vector. You won't really be vectored until you hear radar contacts fly heading, but that one does get confusing to people somehow or sometimes um, in these remote um, airports that are non-towered and in uncontrolled airspace.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because it's happening quite often now because uh, certain towers have been closed. And also, some yeah. of us depart late at night uh, from some areas that, uh, you know, especially the void if not off by. Uh, one of the things I think is important, too, is make sure that if you don't get off, what do you need to do next? What if you have a problem and you can't fly? You need to give them a call, right?
7: Right. Exactly. Yes. Your clearance. Your clearance is void, but if you haven't called anybody, now they've got… Basically, a missing aircraft situation they've got to figure out. They're not just going to start running airplanes into that airport. Now it becomes uh, sort of like a search and rescue because they don't know that you didn't have a problem and crash right off the end of the runway. So they've got to start looking um, for that.
1: Yeah, and that's really important because that does happen. And if you don't call them back right away or you say you abort the takeoff, uh, you really could be inconveniencing somebody else. Uh, so, and, and, you know, interestingly enough, I use this a lot at work because I fly a lot at night into some remote areas and uh, it, clearance void if not off by. And uh, and if you're not off by that time and you had a problem, say, uh, you were trying to fix, you got to call them and say, hey, we can't get off. And because now you're holding everybody else up and he's doing this air traffic control. See, a lot of people are coming into the airport. Now you're, it's down in the conga line now. Now you're holding up somebody that's 50 to hundred miles away. So a uh, good point. I think, I think that's something that we really need to do, do more of and, and look at different options too, because there's phone numbers you can call. There's, there's maybe there's approach control. Uh, like you said, RCOs. So terrific stuff. That, that was really good stuff. Um, and the upon entering controlled airspace, uh, great, great discussion there. Um, how about other things that we don't really cover on the uh, IFR uh, training normally? Let's see, Bill. I think yours is
7: next. Yeah, this, uh, that was another one. Um, let's Finally, let's dispense with the, the departures uh, off of an airport. I think we beat that to death. <laughs> uh, but uh, like you guys both mentioned, I think we all know um, IFR training, you don't generally go to many places Uh, you might make a cross country here or there if you haven't got your cross country logged up but uh you know everybody's trying to you know save a few bucks here and there so you stick around the local area do a bunch of approaches for the most part and now you get your rating you want to go somewhere uh, now you're starting to mix in with the system and starting to realize that it's not just take off and fly whichever way you want to go to get to places kind of go in the opposite of our remote fields now, when you are flying in uh, more crowded areas, busier uh, metropolitan areas, you will find pretty quickly that the system does not allow you to pretty much just take off and go in a straight line to your destination. There's gonna be different routings that's that's used by ATC um, to get you this way and that. And some of it may not be very evident to you why they're going the different uh, ways that they're going. Well, if you think, I think we've all seen this now in the last couple of months, right? When you go to the grocery store, they've got shop this way in this aisle and shop this way in that aisle. Well, that's pretty much the way the airspace system is set up too. The big airports have, the, the indoor and the outdoor, and they're going to be used and they're going to be full of jets and, and other things like that. And and in some places, you've got a lot of complicated uh, airports around and the, and the major traffic is going in and out uh, through some various locations. And that's probably not where you're going to be going in your small plane uh, to cut right across there. So there's a whole uh, tangled mess of routings that's worked out between... Air traffic facilities, so they know where to expect airplanes, and those are coded into their system through a number of different um, uh, techniques. They'll, you'll hear them called preferred routes. So airplanes coming from you know city A or the satellite airports around city A, going to city B are pretty much going to follow the same the same track, um, and that's going to avoid uh, the traffic that's going between cities D and E, and and so on and so forth. Um, you will find very similar to SIDs and stars, but in a more general sense, uh, what's called preferential departure routes, sort of like stars, and pre- or, I'm sorry, SIDs and preferential arrival routes, sort of like stars, that that will funnel the aircraft into that general shape of the SIDs and stars uh, for the for the big airports. Again, to give air traffic a, an idea of the the indoor and the outdoor, you know, just like driving on the right side of the road, um, in in the old days, it was a little more difficult to figure out where those were and and how to figure out which route you might get. Um, you mostly would just file what you wanted and bring lots of sharp pencils, and an ATC would tell them to you. Um, in our uh, recent years, of course, for flight, the solution to all things apparently um, can pretty much tell you uh the routes that have been used between different city pairs and and publishes a lot of the those routes in an easy easier form than hunting them down there there once was you know a book you could flip through for that but it was not very um not very user-friendly uh but our our electronic flight bag software now can help you um help you do that there was one set of routings that uh I've gotten asked about a number of times, I heard this crop up in a, in a conversation, sort of hangar flying uh, not too long ago. And it's called TEC, Tower and Root Control. And that's another set of preferential routes as well. Um, and just don't want to belabor it, but what what is it? And why do you care about what tower and root control means? Um, that's a historical kind of leftover thing. Uh, back in 1981, uh, when the air traffic controller strike occurred, um, and staffing was at you know bare skeleton crews back then, the uh, they had to do something to just to keep the traffic flowing. And the centers, the air traffic control centers, uh, were of course hit hard with the staffing. And the jets, the air the airliners at the time uh, were their primary concern. They wanted to keep the load of general aviation and lower altitude traffic off of the the centers so that they could handle the, the airlines. So this um, system of routes that would keep the lower altitude and the general aviation traffic within the approach controls um, an out-of-center airspace was developed. Now, back then, we didn't have so many of the big giant super TRACONs like we have now, the, the New York and the Socals and, and uh, Potomacs and things like that. Most approach controls were just um, the single main airport, kind of small 40-mile radius, eight to 10,000 feet at the most. So these routes were set up to just go through those small little facilities and keep them away from the center. Now, obviously, the system recovered and that wasn't so necessary anymore. And and then the, uh, the TRACONs grew large, those smaller TRACONs all merged together became one big um, uh, facility and their airspace increased and everything. So it kind of doesn't matter much anymore, but there are some systems that they adapted there to keep um, traffic within the one facility when you're in one of those giant um, uh, approach control airspaces. It just helps simplify things and coordination. So if you could, Make your trip and stay completely within, for example SoCal Tracon in Southern California uh, without cutting off this one little corner and bumping into the center or bumping into another facility helps keep their um, their coordination down. so you'll see routes like that um, to just again keep the traffic flowing, minimal coordination for the controllers. so you'll see those listed um, in the chart supplement Four flight um, pops them right out for you anyway they're really. Uh, don't mean anything different than a preferential route anymore, but uh, that's what the whole um, reason for those is.
1: Yeah, it's a great great tool, that's for sure. And a lot of people don't think about it. Say they're in the New York area and trying to get down to where you are or get down in the D.C. area, say, and and Baltimore, you know, use tower and route control uh, It really makes life a lot easier. And uh, I've used it quite often, and I, I think it's great. Sometimes we forget about it. Uh, but good stuff. Boy, Bill, that was great. Great... Uh, uh, discussion there. Uh, anything else, Bill, that you have? Is, uh, is for uh, I
7: think that's about the only uh, the notes that I got. We're looking good.
1: And uh, also, I think Russ, that was it. I do have one more thing to add. Uh, one of the things that I do a lot of and. I do a lot of interview prep for like the airlines. That's basically my business, and especially on the other podcast. The errors that I see, uh, the common errors that we have in the interviews come from a lot of this, come from things that we really didn't go over much uh, or in depth uh, on the IFR check ride. Also, uh, amazingly enough, some of those basic things uh, they do we do forget. So it's always good, I feel, uh, so that we don't get caught being beyond the check ride is to grab something to remind us. Uh, and I already have a different pick of the week, but one of the things I love is the the some of these oral exam guides. And ASA puts out a great one, the Instrument Pilot Oral Exam Guide. I feel that's a great way to go beyond the IFR check ride. Is to grab that, review it, and a lot of what we've talked about here is actually in there. If you have any questions, start researching it. So. Uh, that's how you can get rid of the, some of those errors. I do in a whole video series on, on interview prep. A lot of that stuff has to do with IFR procedures and simple stuff. You know, when can you descend on the approach, etc. cetera. Uh, those are all in, or many of them are here in the oral exam guide. It's a, a great thing, a great resource. So that's another another thing we can do. We can to, go into hours and hours just talking about that. But I think in general, uh, pull out the books and, and review. Hey, I, I do it all the time. I'm constantly digging into things and trying to stretch myself, you know, figure out what a sermon route is. And those are, you know, for procedures up in the New York area for airlines, but also this tower and route control thing. That'll actually help you throughout the, the rest of your flying life. That's for sure. So great stuff, Bill and Russ. This has been awesome. Uh, the, as far as going beyond the IFR checkride, beyond the IFR checkride also means, like I said, it's a continual Study. It's a continual amount of learning, and uh, and that's what's great, and that's why you know both Russ, Bill, myself, we all know um, we don't know everything, so we have to continually try to stretch ourselves, and uh, and that's what's wonderful about this topic. Well, I hope you enjoyed those three episodes. We really enjoyed bringing them to you, of course, from myself, Carl Valerian, all the other co-hosts here at the Stuck Mike Avcast. We really enjoy bringing you this podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. I highly recommend you go checking out our other past episodes. Click on past episodes at stuckmikeavcast.com. And all those things that we talked about throughout the year, remember the picks of the week that we do? We have links to all those from all the past nine and a half years that we've been doing this right on the website. As a matter of fact, that helps us out, move forward with this podcast and be able to produce it. And if you're somebody that wants to pay it forward and help us out at the same time, think about becoming a patron of the podcast, stuckmikeavcast.com slash patron, as we can find out more about how you can help the podcast for just as little as $1 a month and also help somebody get a scholarship because every dollar that we raise, we put it towards a pay it forward campaign that actually buys a scholarships guide for somebody out there. So check it out on the website, stuckmakeafcastcom slash patron. Well, again, it's been my pleasure being the host of this show and I can't wait for the upcoming shows that we're going to have in the new year live shows. We're going to be streaming a few of them on YouTube. And of course, those are our favorite ones being over at Oshkosh and also at, sun and fun at uh, the land all the mo- the wonderful shows that we do out there plus being reaching out with you folks uh, and if you have any questions of course reach out to us uh, on the contact page again carl Blair with the stuck mike avcast appreciate your listening i really want to you know tell you to do something uh, not just now but when you turn this off do something tomorrow today every day in your aviation life and try to get out there and fly. If you can't fly, read about flying, listen to podcasts, watch videos. But I really want to encourage you to keep moving in forward in your flying life. Oh, well, we'll talk to you next episode and safe flying out there. You've been
0: listening to the Stuck Mike
1: Abcast.